This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who's away sick today. Oh, not a good time to be sick. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about man flu. Wonder if uh, he's really experiencing sickness or if he's just a big faker. Well, we'll find out hopefully tomorrow. Welcome to the show. You know, it's only 13 days until Christmas. 13 days. Can you believe it? Also, as uh, I'm sure Terry would note, only three days until Star Wars The Last Jedi premieres on Friday the 15th. And then also today, of course, is Election Day in Alabama. It'll be very interesting to see what those results are. And I'm sure we're going to be talking about those results, regardless of how it turns out, um, for a long time to come on the show. And Terry will not be attending the employee Christmas party to go see Star Wars The Last Jedi. No. So we will be flooding his phone with text messages throughout. We'll do live streaming. And I'll turn the phone spoilers. off. It'll be great. <laughs> no, I uh, I was hearing that, I mean, that, uh, I was reading some articles talking about just the, the sheer number of web traffic that whenever you put something Star Wars centric or related or adjacent, mm-hmm. whenever you put that up on your website, people just flood the website because it said Star Wars. Yeah. You say it doesn't even matter what it is. We will just the, the numbers go up when people when you see the word you know well, Star that's Wars. A good tip. But the, yeah, for anyone running a website, <laughs> just put Star Wars up. But they said the problem is is because like today all the reviews come out so, today. Yes. Ooh. So the embargo is is lifted. Uh, the guy here in our building that uh, Sean who reviews movies, he went and saw the movie yesterday. <sighs> so that you know, did the, he say anything to you? Not yet. Okay. Usually he'll walk in and go, it's pretty good, and then that's it, because he can't really tell you much. <laughs> he said that there's so many like different plot points and elements in there that it's hard to describe the movie without spoiling portions of it. Especially in his 90-second uh, reviews. Right. And so he usually you, you can come in and give sort of an overview of this is kind of what happens without ruining the movie, but he's like, I don't know, this is will make, you know kind of a difficult task to do that. Hmm. Um, and also the idea that today all that stuff comes out, all the reviews, and then all, every TV show, every radio show, every you know they're all trying to kind of jump on that Star Wars train through the weekend, and all they can do is try to, I guess maybe spoil things every few days I don't know what I it's hard and and they're they're feeling mistakes will come okay and people will give away huge por- portions of the movie so if you're really concerned stay away from the internet one thing that I did read said yeah avoid spoilers yeah and you know I I've tried to adopt this new practice of not watching every trailer that's released right I'll just try to watch the first you know, the the teaser trailer, which used to only be about 30 seconds, a minute long. Mm-hmm. Now they're full-length trailers, but yeah. they're still called teaser trailers. So do you think uh, Rotten Tomatoes is going to release the reviews early? I don't or know. Or do you think they're going to force everybody, are they going to hold them ransom or hold them hostage and make everybody watch their See It, Skip It program? The Yeah. The Justice League, uh, what, Rotten Tomatoes number was held till, what, the Thursday? Thursday night, yeah. Wednesday into Thursday where Sheesh. they have this Facebook... TV Facebook program they put on, 
and they want to have this huge reveal. Maybe they'll do that with with this movie. I'm still but, convinced that the studio is putting pressure on them to not release well, them. <laughs> War- well, that's the thing. Was, Warner Brothers has a huge stake in that website, sure. in Rotten Tomatoes. So, yeah, the people felt like that's what was going on there. And seeing that this is a, a Disney, you know, Star Wars separate entity from Warner Brothers, maybe they'll just release it and say, who cares? Well, just for the record, we just spent about five minutes talking about Star Wars and we glossed over Christmas in about three seconds. <laughs> well, it's fine. Christmas comes after. Oh, that it's, comes every year, too. Yeah, right? and it's like next, next. well, now every Star Wars comes every year, too. That's but, true. But, you know, Chris, I, my, my boy was melting down last, melting down last night because he wanted to have a Christmas dance party uh-huh. in the house and he wanted to make a wreath. And my wife, she's sick right now little head cold type of yeah. thing. So she's not feeling around, you know, bouncing around the room and, and doing crafts and all this stuff. She just wanted to sit down and not think. And so my kid's melting down because he's like, we're never going to do it. There won't be any time to have a Christmas party. I go, there's there's like 13 days left. You're fine. Christmas isn't tomorrow. We're fine. So he was broken up because you guys weren't going to make a Christmas wreath. Well, he wanted to, I don't know, they're doing some craft thing. I go downstairs <laughs> and ignore it because, you know, I have work to do. I have the news. Wow. But so I don't know if you're going to be talking about this, but it doesn't sound like she has man flu. Um, no, I think she has kid plague. Ooh, ooh, so the kid plague. flu, kid flu. She calls it the plague because it makes her feel like she's dying <laughs> on the inside. But uh, yeah. Wow. Well, why don't you give us a taste of what's going on around the rest of the country, Terry? Alabama election is today. Roy Moore, he came out of hiding. <laughs> apparently, apparently, Roy Moore uh, was in different places over the last week or so. He went to Philadelphia. His son's at mm. West Point up there, so he went up there to hang out. So, I mean, it's a common practice when you're running for office, major office, national office in a state, to just leave the state, of course, and go somewhere else, yeah. for seven days. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, I'm sure that off. was he was advised by his people to yeah. do that. How about you leave the state so you don't have to answer <laughs> any questions? Yes. So uh, he came back. They held, held a rally. There was actually dueling rallies in the state, one for Doug Jones, the Democrat, and right. one for Roy Moore. Uh, Steve Bannon was there for Roy Moore and uh, Charles Barkley. And uh, who else? There's several other national politicians there for, for Doug, Doug Jones. Jones. Yeah. Uh, Roy Moore's wife spoke. Her name is Kayla, Kayla Moore. She dismissed any allegations of anti-Semitism on Monday night, which is well, what, thank goodness. which is what most Senate candidates have to do the night before election is dispel any rumors that you don't like the Jewish people. And that's what we're all wondering anyway, right? right? So she claimed that she and her husband have Jewish friends, <laughs> which is our accountant is Jewish. <laughs> which, whenever you're accused of not liking a minority group, you always go find your friend that's sure. of that minority group. See, I have a friend. I told you. And so her, she goes, it's fake news. Fake news will tell you that we don't care for the Jews, Kayla Moore told rallygoers on the eve of the election, according to the Washington Post reporter and other reports, reporters on the scene. One of our attorneys is a Jew. Roy Moore has been accused of anti-Semitism for his comments about George Soros, a Jewish donor to liberal causes. Earlier this month, Moore appeared to imply that Jews... Uh, would go to hell, saying Soros was going to the same place that people who don't recognize God and morality and accept a salvation are going, and are, it's not in a good place. I once saw a movie with a Jewish person. Yeah. So, whatever. <laughs> that, that's the, the, the nonsense of the selection. Right. Just get it over with, finally. <laughs> Vote. 
figure out what's going on. Democratic uh, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand on Monday called upon President Trump to resign over the dozen-plus allegations that he sexually harassed or assaulted multiple women. If Trump does not resign, she said Congress should launch an ethics investigation into the claims. President Trump should resign, she tells CNN. These allegations are credible. They are numerous. I've heard these women's testimony, and many of them are heartbreaking. President Trump should resign his position. Whether he will ever hold himself accountable is something you really can't hold your breath for, so Congress should hold hearings. They should have their investigation. President Trump responded to Kirsten Gillibrand's calls for him to resign on Monday in typical forthright fashion during an early morning Twitter tirade, as he's wont to do. Mm. He claimed the New York Democrat had come to my office begging for campaign contributions not long ago, and in parentheses he put, and would do anything for them. Wow. So, yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think he's going to resign. And there won't be an investigation because, you know, who runs Congress right now? Right. So we'll see what happens. President Trump signed a directive Monday aimed at refocusing America's space program on human exploration and discovery. The directive signals the administration's intention to send American astronauts back to the moon and eventually Mars. Spokesman Hogan Gidley clarified earlier in the day to Reuters, despite America, America having already checked the moon off its to-do list in 1969, Trump said it's time we not only plant our flag and leave our footprint, we will establish a foundation for an eventual mission to Mars and perhaps someday to many worlds beyond. He then turned mm. around to one of uh, the last astronauts to ever walk on the moon. He goes, there's other places to go, right? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, yeah, sure. Just go see Star Wars. You'll see a bunch of other places right. to visit. So, George Bush... W. George W. Bush yes. had a similar plan. I believe President Obama had a similar plan, and now President Trump has a similar plan as we, quote-unquote, refocus our efforts on the stars. That's exciting. I think Star Wars is to blame for the renewed interest in it, exploration. It would have been better if they would have had some sort of stormtrooper wandering around behind him. That would have made just uh, – I don't know. Many administrations put this – you know idea forward the problem comes when they start trying to allocate money towards it and they start realizing that people don't have food yeah and we're going to try to put people on the moon and how do you balance those two goals you know feeding people and then a space program well we've never been to certain places in space but we've fed people every day all right you know but we're not doing a good (laughs) job of that in many areas so i mean and that's the that's the push and pull of politics is where do you put the money Mm -hmm. and where's the Where's the greatest need? But at the same time, you kind of want to keep pushing the space program, I think, because you, you get science and discovery and you get also advanced in technology as we try to figure out these bigger problems. Mm-hmm. And then that helps out, you know, our country and our economy also. So I don't know. Wouldn't it be great if it was like the movie Dave where this guy who is pretending to be the president can go into a budget meeting and, and balance the budget within like two hours? Well, I mean, you can do it. <laughs> it's just probably not the – most rational way of going. You just start slashing and, you know, this gone. Yeah. Who needs this? Cut those. Uh, so Yale Law School, they put out a yearly librarian's list of the most notable quotes of 2017. Ooh, okay. Found this this morning. Thought this was interesting. The uh, I don't know if they have these listed in like 1 through 12 or whatever it is, but the, here's a list. Right. Uh, Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts. That's a quote. Alternative facts. That's Kellyanne Conway on Meet the Press. That's where that quote right there came mm-hmm. from, alternative facts. Uh, alter- and then the response to it were alternative facts are not facts. They're falsehoods. Oh. That was, was Chuck Todd to 
Kellyanne Conway. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that whole situation was just, everyone's like, well, alternative facts. What are you talking about? Um, another one here says, I just fired the head of the FBI. He was crazy, a real nut job. I faced great pressure because of Russia. That's taken off. Hmm. President Trump, as reported by the New York Times, explaining the firing FBI Director James Comey to visiting Russian officials. If you remember wow. that picture that was taken. Yes. You fire the FBI, bring the Russian ambassador into your office, and then tell him you fired him because I was facing great pressure because of Russia. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Which I, I think is the really kind of the basis for any sort of obstruction of justice Case oh, sure. that's moving forward yeah. is kind of that whole situation. So yeah. that, that has significance, that quote there. Uh, with respect to any women who have made allegations on the record, Mr. Weinstein believes that all of these relationships were consensual. Uh, okay. That's from Harvey Weinstein's <laughs> spokesperson on, on October 10th. Is that person still his spokesperson? I'm not sure. Yeah. But uh, again, that sort of a comment kind of... There's a huge movement that happened because of Harvey Weinstein, which was October 1st. Wow. Right? So I, I know it feels Seems like- Seems so long ago. I went through- There's all these TV shows. You're watching and all of a sudden someone makes a comment. Someone says something or does something and you're like, wow, when did that happen? Yeah. Because you're waiting like just culturally people will shift away from making comments like that when this kind of dominates the news with mm-hmm. sexual harassment and these kind of comments that way. And you start looking and there were so many TV shows that were just a week later. Oh. These comments are out there where they're like, let's go out and, you know, like, what are the, let's go out and objectify women. And it was supposed to be like a yeah. funny joke. Yeah. And you're like, wow, really? Did they just say that? And you-, you know, it's funny. When we watched the Oscars this last year, we counted the number of Trump, Trump references. Right. And I hit, I got the exact number correct. I'm willing to bet uh, there are going to be a lot of Harvey Weinstein remarks during yeah. the Golden Globes. I don't know. I heard some other people say people may just want to move away from that mm. because it's it's them. You yeah, know what but I mean? it's, it's the those... easy it's the easy material, yeah. you know, for Seth Meyers to tackle. And you may get a just it may be one of those sort of groaner sort of jokes. Yeah. Where everyone's like, oh, yeah, and he's like, what? Too soon? Yeah, it's going to make people very uncomfortable. They should have had Ricky Gervais host. They could have because he doesn't care. Uh, we can't have the inmates running the prison. That's Robert <laughs> McNair, owner of the Houston Texans, on NFL players protesting in the national anthem. Hmm. So it's inmates running the asylum, right? That's the yes. reference, not the prison. Yeah. And so that didn't go over well. Um, yes, is the quote. Elizabeth Warren responding to Jake Tapper's question on whether the 2016 Democratic primaries were rigged in favor of Hillary Clinton. Just yes. She's all, yes, wow. they were. <laughs> wow. That was a big day. Um, this one you'll you'll remember. And the Academy Award for Best Picture, La La Land. That's from Warren oh. Beatty and uh, Faye Dunaway. Faye Dunaway kind of just sort of faded into the background really quick she in that situation. She took off as quickly as she could. Warren Beatty's out there, like, oh, I guess this is my fault. <clears throat> so, <laughs> Now, who actually won? It was Moonlight. Oh, that's right. That's Moonlight. Right. So they had that awkward exchange. And, you know, the La La Land people were very gracious, but super awkward. And I, I again, this year, they got uh, Jimmy Kimmel back, and I'm sure there are going to be a lot of references to right. that. I heard a whole podcast with Jimmy Kimmel talking about that whole situation. Oh, it's crazy. And he goes, it wasn't my fault. Yeah. He goes, the biggest mistake that could possibly have happened on that stage, and I was off stage completely. I wasn't even involved. He goes, but then I walked out. 
and I had to sort of clean this up. And so he's just sort of talking and handing a mic microphone around. Yeah, and, and you know it was you know it wasn't fake because he and Matt Damon had another bit planned for oh, yeah. just after that. Right. So that was a big a big moment there. Uh, it's a shame the White House has become an adult daycare center. Ooh, that was Senator Bob Corker. We know he's not going to run for reelection. He uh, so he feels. Uh, released or they say untethered from the electorate okay so he can just say whatever he wants is kind of the quote i heard um there's too much money in the world really lawrence luring hmm. an art dealer reacting to the sale of a painting possibly by leonardo da vinci for over 450 million dollars oh that's right he's like there's just too much money in the world too People much money like, in the world not enough in my bank account yeah i think that's kind of yeah a universal thought there for people. <laughs> so, yeah, those are some of the, the list of the most notable quotes of 2017, according to the Yale Law Library. Wow. Well, and as we know, the Me Too, hashtag Me Too, was, uh, was the people of the year on Time magazine? Yeah. How do you, hmm, wow. It was more of a movement than specific people, I guess. Well, I mean, they, they put, uh, you know, some key women in that. That have sure. know, been part of that on the cover. Was Ashley Judd on there? She was because okay. she was the she was the one that first came out and talked about Harvey Weinstein. Very brave. And then you had uh, Taylor Swift. I was actually confused as to why she was on the cover. Yeah, I'm like, are we just throwing her on there because she's Taylor Swift? But she had the uh, lawsuit in Colorado as a radio DJ uh, oh, had some illegal use of hands during a uh, concert promotional event mm. several years ago. She accused him. He said that's incorrect. The judge, the uh, the jury sided with her, and he well, of lost. Of course, they're going to side with Terry. But she sued for one dollar, right? Oh, good she for her. She sued for one dollar because she just wanted him to admit that he did it. That's amazing. She wasn't in it for ruining anyone's life. I mean, he lost his job, obviously, but sure. she wasn't trying to get some monetary element out of it. But yeah, she sues for a dollar, and so she, she's up there because of some of the speeches, some of the words that she said around that. And then on the, they're all kind of standing in front of a table, and there's an elbow on the cover. There's an elbow out, and that represents all the women who have not spoken. Ah. See, now that is a genius move on her part, because what that does is to all the people that are saying, oh, well, they're just doing this to get the money, right. she's proving them wrong. Mm-hmm. She's doing this to bring attention to it and to really get these people to admit what they did was wrong and uh, and make them pay for their mistake in a different way. And we had some of our producers on the show. Well, one of them, she drove to Colorado so she could sit in the courtroom. That's right. Because she's a Taylor Swift fan. <laughs> she <laughs> she go, wasn't really so in support of the movement. More. What about the movement or yeah. the issue? She goes, no, I just want to see Taylor Swift. I'm like, all right. Oh, good for her. Good for her. Well, man, it's been an eventful and crazy, crazy year. And depending on what happens later today, you know, could be even crazier. Right. Wow. Go out and vote or don't vote or whatever you want to do. Do you know when the the polls close? They will close, I believe it's 8 Eastern. Okay. Usually because they opened at 8 o'clock this morning. In Alabama, and so they're closing probably – usually they close around 8 Eastern is usually kind of the universal yeah. closing of polls across the nation. So, Wow. Well, for a lot of people, uh, you know, they're living the American dream. I'm sure for a lot of people this would not be the American dream, some of these things that have happened this year. Mm. But coming up next, we're actually going to be revisiting an interview that Dr. Matt did on the American dream with Michelle Dickerson. 
And uh, yeah, Dr. Matt uh, has some important questions for us. It's a very interesting topic. When we return, we're going to revisit that interview here on The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. You know, the American dream has been a symbol of hope in our nation for over 50 years. However, it seems that in the last few years, this dream has become increasingly more difficult to obtain. In fact, many believe it's impossible and that the American dream is actually dead. Well, a few months back, Dr. uh, Matt Townsend spoke with Michelle Dickerson, professor of law at the University of Texas at Austin, who wrote an article titled, Is the American Dream Dead?, It explores the downward spiral of the three basic tenets of the American dream, owning a home, having stable employment, and retiring debt-free and financially secure. So how has the recent economic turmoil and the trends in housing and employment affected our ability to achieve the thing that once made our nation great? And will we ever get back on top? Well, Dr. Matt began the interview by asking if the American dream is dead. I think it's it's dead for some people and not for others, on life support for some mm. and not for others. But one of the interesting comments that, you, that actually you just made is sort of the whole notion of the middle class, because I would say 90% of all Americans probably would say they're in the middle class, mm-hmm. which we know can't be true. Right, exactly. So, you know, the economists may be right, depending on how they're defining the middle class. That's true. That's true. And I guess that's part of it because it seems like anybody um, that is uh, financially struggling, anybody – I mean and there's so many everywhere from – we're on a college campus and so we see a student after student that are graduating and they can't find a job or they're going to have to have multiple jobs. So from just the less educated, the undereducated, from the underemployed, from um, minority communities that, that haven't had necessarily the same opportunities, it's, it's got to seem hopeless. Well, and the, the job piece has dramatically changed over the last 30 years, because I'm also, um, you know, work at, at, at University of Texas. Yeah. And there is a concern with the number of our students who are graduating and facing two things that really weren't that big of a, of a problem. They weren't a crisis 30 years ago. First is a really dramatically different labor market. And second, mounds of student loan debt. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, 30 years, people that, uh, you know, sort of went into the workforce, what I call the old economy, you go in the workforce in the 1970s, 1980s, you may not get your dream job to start out with, but what you could reasonably expect you would get is a full-time, 40-hour-a-week job that probably paid you some kind of benefit. Mm. That's just not the reality that young people, the millennials, Gen Y, that they're facing when they're going out into the market right now. And and they're carrying that debt load, aren't they? So they have a huge debt load, I mean, in regards to their income, and they can't go necessarily get a 40-hour-a-week uh, a job. Exactly. They, they might so need they, two or three sort of, jobs. Exactly. I mean, this, this sort of gig economy that we're in now where it, be, it it has become normal for people to have to sort of 
piece together two or three jobs to come up with what, you know, 30 years ago, 30, 40 years ago, we would have called a reasonable income. Uh, And I'm not picking on, you know, Uber or Lyft, but that sort of symbolizes what's going on with a lot of our uh, people that are young folks that are trying to find jobs. You have to drive a car at night and Mm. do something, a couple of different jobs during the day in order to come up with enough money just to get by. Yeah. And that might be that I guess that could be someone with an education or without with a college degree or not. It doesn't it doesn't give you that ticket, like you said. To uh, to go get the job. Um, exactly. What what now, this idea of the American dream though is? It, it was the first time I've ever heard who who coined it. It was James Truslow Adams yeah. in eighty five years ago. He coined the term. Yeah, and it wasn't. I don't think it meant the same thing eighty five years ago. Obviously, as, right. as it means now. But there has always been this notion that we would have some form of upward mobility. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you if whether you're an immigrant coming to the country or, you know, you're the um, you're the you're a child. Right. If you work hard, play by the rules that you basically will get to the point where you have some sort of stability and security. You may not be rich, but that you will at least have a comfortable life. I think that was the notion of the American dream, you know, 85 years ago. And I think most people are still aspiring for that. It's just really hard. Oh, yeah. And it's – I guess that you're right. The dream was that if you you could get a house and you could eventually pay it off and eventually you could have a retirement and you could retire and maybe at 70 be done or 60 – actually back right. in the day, 60 be done. And mm-hmm. it's just – I guess that's part of the dream too that's lost. Yeah. And, you know, we, we saw a lot of the sort of the ugly side of people trying to achieve the American dream of homeownership during the um, housing boom, and which, of course, then followed by the housing crash, mm. where people who couldn't afford to be homeowners, but they're thinking, I work full time, I've got a job, I should be able to buy a house, but I can't. And then we came up, you know, the banks came up with all of those crazy mortgages, and people got into the homes only to soon fall out of the homes because of foreclosure. But it was this sort of yearning to own my own home. Um, And, you know, we can criticize some of the homes that people were buying during that period. Mm -hmm. They were too big. The mini mansions or whatever, yeah. Exactly, right. But... It, it was that wasn't all that was going on. It, it wasn't just that everybody that was buying a home was trying to live beyond their means. Many people just wanted to own their own home, which really has been a sort of a stable component, a consistent component of what we think it means to be middle class mm. in this country. Yeah, no, that was it's kind of life, liberty, a pursuit of happiness, and a home. Exactly right. I mean, the, the the picket fence has always been a part of. I've got my own home in the backyard. That's true, huh? Picket fence and a car. You got to have a car exactly. if you're not in New York. It's um, but the housing boom. I guess that is one of the big signs too that it the housing prices just keep going up and up and up relative to incomes that are more stagnant. And that is something I guess squeezing people out of the dream. Well, and it's doing more than just squeezing people out of the dream of being a homeowner. It is squeezing people out of the dream of having stable and secure, affordable housing. 
because in most, certainly in the larger U.S. cities, and we're seeing it certainly in my city of Austin, Texas, it's really difficult for middle-income families to even find affordable rental housing. Mm. So we're beyond the problem of can I find a home I can afford to buy. Now the issue is can I find anything that I can afford to call my dwelling place? And yeah. that's another big change. The, the, it's a rental mentality, right? I mean, it's a rental world. Now people exactly. are more inclined to just rent, except now you're saying we can't even necessarily afford to rent. That's right. I mean, a, a lot of major cities are looking at their middle class disappearing because they can't afford to live in the city. And, of course, that then creates the problem of the, the transportation. So now you've got an hour-and-a-half commute to try to get to your job because you can't even afford to live in the city mm. where you work. And we're talking about you know, school teachers yeah. who can't afford to live in the, near the schools they teach in. So then you have to commute an hour and a half to get to your school. And what kind of life is that? Exactly. And, and plus, well, I mean, gas prices have gone down now, but mm-hmm. that was becoming catastrophic when gas prices were so high. So, I mean, really, it's, it's the fundamental things that we thought it meant to sort of strive for the American dream. Um, home ownership is becoming challenging. Retirement is becoming really challenging. And it's just making people really scared and angry. Yeah. In fact, I guess that seems like thus the movement, the Bernie Sanders movement, the Donald Trump movement, throw the bums out. Right. Yeah. It's a, they've had, you know, sort of the – and it's really interesting because you have uh, sort of the, the far left and right of the political spectrum who seem to be feeling the same level of anxiety. Mm-hmm. We're – we're scared, we're upset, we feel our country has let us down, and we feel our political leaders have let us down. So let's go for something that in any other election cycle, I don't think you would have seen. No, I think you're right. And it's, it seems like, uh, tell me if this is on or off, I think you even mentioned it in your article, that many of the uh, kind of middle-income, white middle-aged men, 45 to 56 or so, are feeling the the biggest pain, I guess, uneducated white men at that age. Um, and they're mad at Obama. I mean, one of the things I hear a lot about is Obama, it's, it's the health care uh, initiative that now made it so that you can't get a job with more than 30 hours because you'll be considered like full-time or whatever. So everyone's moved. So now you're getting a 28-hour a week job um, without benefits, which you used to be able to, you know, have a forty-hour-a-week job or thirty-eight-hour-a-week job without benefits. And, and I think that's that's an easy scapegoat, and that'll work. You know, that'll yeah. work as well as any other. But the simple reality is the the labor market has been shifting for thirty or forty years. Mm. Yeah. So if if you're going to be angry, you've got a lot of uh, presidential administration mm-hmm. to be angry at because this didn't just happen in eight or ten or even fifteen years. Well, this is why everybody is now talking about the trade deals, right? And be- because the shifting of the the marketplace and the shifting exactly. of certain jobs out of the country and certain jobs to other parts of the country, and even now right. the the labor unions themselves aren't as allied to maybe the Democratic Party as historically they would have been, even though they. Probably are, right. but um, it's it really it's a shift going on, huh? This isn't a new thing. It's just exactly. it's just come to a head. It seems like, and 
One of the other interesting things, you know, you mentioned the, the, the labor movement. One of the things that's happened, again, sort of the shift in 30, 40 years, is a uh, diminished um, uh, power or influence of labor unions. Mm. And so a lot of things that have happened to workers perhaps wouldn't have happened in the 60s or 70s when labor unions were much stronger. But no, this didn't just happen overnight. It's been a series of things that have happened um, in the United States that's made people very anxious, very concerned about whether they'll ever be able to have a middle-class lifestyle. This is – I think this is in, an important discussion. Um, talk about your book. What book are you writing that uh, the research led to this article? Well, I, I would love to say it's soon to be released. Oh, yeah. Somewhat earlier stages than that, but it's, it's actually the book is going to be about what I call the disappearing middle class. Mm. And the focus of the book will look at both low wages and high debt and how those two things have combined to destroy the American dream. And didn't they get um, into debt for the dream, right? I'm going to go get educated, and then it ended up biting them. Yeah, and... And one of the other things that, that I found in, in doing the research for the book is because I kept focusing on sort of the income inequality and wealth inequality, and that is a huge issue. But the more I focused on the income part, I kept seeing that we have to look at the other side of the ledger sheet because household debts are going up. Hmm. And so what has happened with a lot of people is they couldn't find the income. Income was stagnant, and so they were using debt to try to finance their middle-class life. And not enough income and too much debt is a recipe for disaster. Oh, yeah. And I guess also perpetuated the rich getting richer because they were making money on your debt. Exactly, exactly. And again, you know, we saw it, I probably the worst example during the housing crash, but we're also seeing now, for example, uh, a phenomena with the middle class doing things like using pawn shops. So, you know, historically, that was for, you know, the working class yeah. or the very poor. But you are na- we are now seeing an increased use of pawn shops, payday loans, check cashers, with folks who are solidly in the middle class. And that's just not something we saw 30 years ago. Mm. Isn't this... It's it is it's it's um it's kind of it's turned upside down and and now with California making the fifteen dollar minimum um uh for what's a fifteen dollar minimum in, minimum minimum wage, wage. Yeah. um mm-hmm. I mean but but again that is the working class that that they have always seemingly been struggling but now you're saying it's eking up into the to the middle class I mean they're pulling right. into into the pawn shop in their nice vehicle to go yeah. pawn their wife's tennis bracelet. Mm-hmm. And, or to, and to go pawn. And there was a uh, pawn shop that opened up in the city of Austin about seven years ago. And because I either have written about debt or talked about debt, and I, I used to teach bankruptcy at the University of Texas, but I saw the pawn shop in a location that was just shocking. It's near um, a lake in the city of Austin where it's a hike and bike lake and hmm. Folks that live in Austin, it's quite quite a prominent area. And I thought, why in the world would that pawn shop be there? And then I started doing research on it, and I realized because their customers aren't too far from there. But yet it was striking when it first appeared to imagine that pawn shops have almost now gone mainstream. Yeah. Wow. It'll be on – yeah, middle class – yeah, right there in the the middle class neighborhoods – 
right next to the other, you know, the Coles and the other (laughs) shopping. um, Man, what about uh, so housing's a big uh, impact on it. The downward mobility, the inability to maybe get a job uh, with a strong wage and then retirement insecurity. So that's more the baby boomers are now finding that they're unable to retire and they're going to have to work longer. Um, What? Because, again, I guess that's the middle class as well. Exactly. And, and again, you know, everyone wants to sort of focus on what's happening now, and I keep saying, but we need to look at what's been happening for the last 30 or 40 years. So I use my parents as an example, actually, in, in, in the book, that you... In the 1960s, 1970s, if you worked in the, for a public sector employer, and for many of the larger private sector employers, you had this thing called a pension that your employer provided for you. Uh, the historical or the traditional pensions were called defined benefit plans. You worked for that employer for 30 or 40 years, and when you retired, you got a check every month. My parents still get their monthly pension mm. that... And the big difference now is for late boomers um, and also for all other generations, if we have a pension, it's because we either totally fund it or we mostly fund it. Hmm. So the new form, the 401ks, the defined contribution plans, we only get back what we put into the plan. And again, that worked fine until the housing market Mm -hmm. crashed. And suddenly people who thought they could retire couldn't retire. People who thought they were going to be able to help their children go to college couldn't do that. And so they're still working trying to recoup the money they lost in the market, whereas older boomers, their pension checks just keep coming month after month Mm. after month. That is so true. And, I mean, it really is, like you're saying, this has been going on 30 to 40 years and and it's just a decision here and a decision there, right? I mean, these are just exactly. subtle little decisions that are now compounding and, and impacting us today. If it took 30 to 40 years to get where we are today, what on earth is the future going to look like? Well, if we don't change, if we don't make a decision that we want to save the middle class in America – then we're going to end up almost in back sort of the Gilded Age, where we have the very, very rich and everybody else. Mm. I don't think that's the society that we want in America. So we're going to have to make some really bold choices and decisions to prevent us from going back to a period of, of time where I don't think anyone looks back to that period and say, oh, that was wonderful for most of America. For the top 1% or 2%, maybe it was great, not for the rest of us. And and like and, and maybe that's the key is keep a national discussion going on about middle class that right. and and this pressure because you can almost see you know the the election ends and all of this anger I guess no longer can be vented but it doesn't go away and I I think that this anger is not going away yeah. because every. Um, the, the the members of the House, and the, well, not as frequently for the members of the, for for our senators, but they're going to have to keep coming up for reelection. And I think the people that are angry now are going to be angry in two years, mm-hmm. and four years, and six years until they see something from our elected officials, both on the federal and on the state level, mm-hmm. that says we hear you. We know you're in pain, and we're going to try to do something about it. But it can't be, you know, as you mentioned, 
this has been going along for 30 years. We can't make a tweak here and a tweak there right. to solve the problem. And what do you tell your students? Um, because they, you got to be kind of hopeless. I mean, I can imagine a law student at UT that's sitting there in debt. I don't know, fifty grand and eighty grand or whatever the numbers are, and their job won't even start at thirty, forty thousand a year. Maybe some of them. And what do you tell them to help them not lose hope? Well, actually, I'll, I won't use the law students as an example, only because I've taught a freshman seminar called Good Debt. Bad debt, ugly debt, Yeah, um, for the last three years. And those are the students that I've really had these conversations with. Many of them are incredibly hopeful because they're freshmen and they've never had jobs and they most of them haven't had bills. And I try to explain to them that, A, you need to start saving right now. You know, it doesn't have to be a lot because they would always say, well, should I open up a, you know, they want to get sophisticated mm-hmm. and open up a, a, a stock, you know, go invest in stock. And my response is no. Even though you're not getting great interest in any bank account right now, open up a savings account and put the money in. Develop an appetite for saving because you're going to have to depend on yourself a lot for your retirement. You're going to have to depend on yourself a lot for for most financial decisions that you make. So learn now how to make good financial choices. That's I great. tell them to think in terms of the jobs that you take. There may have to be a trade-off where you take a job that you hate. If that's the job that you know helps uh, provide a pension, if that's the job that's closer to where you need to be in terms of the, your commute. So I basically tell them you, you may have to make some decisions that are unpleasant and, and don't particularly make you happy to make sure that down the road you're more financially secure. Yeah. No, that's great advice. I mean, because a lot of times I do hear from this younger generation that they want that perfect job and they almost want it right out of the chute. And you're like, mm, exactly. maybe, maybe just take a harder job that you, that you don't necessarily love to get you where you need to go. And one of the things that I often have to tell uh, when I talk to law students, because many students that come to law school, they are idealistic, but in a, and I say this in a very positive way, they truly want to go out and do good. Yeah. They want to make life better for people that are downtrodden, that have been mistreated uh, in the criminal justice system. And one of the hardest conversations I have to have with students is when I say, first, you must retire your student loan debt. Mm. So if you are offered a job by a big law firm that is paying you a lot of money and they'll usually get come to that you paid, say, yeah, yeah, I, I don't like it. That's not what I want to do. It's mm-hmm. not where my heart, where my passion is. And my response is, would you like to retire your debt? Yeah. And that's if it. you do, then you take that job. You work for the job for two, three, four, whatever number of years you need to, to reduce your debt. And then you can go off and save the world. But until you save yourself, you can't save the world. Great advice. Michelle Dickerson, thank you so much. Uh, And keep up that great work at the University of Texas, Austin. Keep writing as well. We need more of your insight. Interesting. There is hope, folks. But uh, you also have some choices to make. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. And Terry South is with us here, as always. 
Terry, I've always thought this was a bad idea, but uh, you're going to tell us a little bit more about flying cars? Yes, uh, it is a dream of many, a solution for the congested roads. Let's just fly, right? We yeah. saw it in Back to the Future 2. Right. Um, it was kind of chaotic as they drop out of whatever their space wormhole warp thing, however that worked on Back to the Future, right into the middle of a onrushing traffic because they're in the wrong lane. Um <laughs> But, I mean, a lot of, like, Google has a, uh, uh, pro- what's it called, Project X, something. It's a lab they have that they're trying to develop um, uh, a flying car. Okay. And they've been doing this for a while. Most of them are in the, the idea of a taxi service. So like, really? Like, Uber has some money into this, and they're thinking, like, maybe we'll have, like, a flying car service. This company out of Australia called Alaudia, A-L-A-U-D-A. They want to create the Ferrari of the sky. So instead of a taxi service mm. or public transit, they want to create their, – their focus is on speed and sport. Really? So they want they want to build a toy and then you go fly it around. So they're just going from zero to 11 because they're not even worried about getting the function right. No. They just want the style. They just want to go fast. They want it to look good. They go uh, – since there's been cars, there's been motorsports, says the CEO of the company – and any type of vehicle, anything we build, we want to race. Anything that makes us go faster, fly higher, we want to compete. They believe that a focus on racing and competition will push the technology forward. It's a similar philosophy that you hear from those involved in the uh, Formula E, which is uh, ra- their electronic race cars, electric yeah, race cars. Yeah. And uh, full size, and drone racing, robot fighting competitions. They're like, <laughs> this is all just building technology, moving it forward. And so they want to create a race. They want to race mm. flying cars, and they want to have this race in 2018. Uh, 2018. Yeah. That's just around the corner. It truly is. The problem is nobody really has a uh, – well, they plan to demonstrate its first human-piloted flight sometime in January 2018. So what? Next month. Next no month. way. Yeah. So they were working on uh, – they, as it says, they've been working in stealth mode for up to two years – it's now ready to take things public. The company has been working with Australian authorities to ensure that its vehicle complies with air traffic regulations, and they want to have this race next month. What do you think? So they've been doing this in stealth mode? So are the cars invisible, too? No, 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 no. Meaning okay. off the radar. No one really knows. No reports out there. No no leaked photos. I, You know, I think just let's forget about space and if we're serious about this put the resources behind this so what they're saying is once completed the the, the vehicle will be capable of carrying a single pilot reach top speeds of more than 200 kilometers per hour uh, which is 150 hmm. some odd there we go <laughs> uh equipped with four custom 50 megawatt motors and powered by the same cells used in the uh, the tesla model s which is the tesla sports car wow the Mark One will use robotics and sensors to ensure safety while putting the driver in control of a performance electric aircraft. I, I'm just saying I, I don't see this really taking off. All right. I'm just saying they're gonna do a, they're gonna demonstrate it. They want to race. They think that this will be their Kitty Hawk moment. Hmm. Right? Like you had the, the Wright brothers and they took flight at Kitty Hawk and they think this is their moment in January when they put their electric car in the sky. So we're either we're going to need a plethora of air traffic controllers right. if this ever does take off, mm-hmm. and I there needs to be some sort of special license that you get. I I would assume there would have to be. Really? Yeah. Like you know, a, like you have a CDL or like yeah, yeah. you got a class 
C license than so some sort of pilot's license, but class P license. Class P, yeah. Mm. <laughs> and that's I mean that's that's the biggest thing is regulation. How are right. you going to make this safe? And you will have things flying through the air. How do? What about everybody on the ground? Where can they use it? It's the same arguments they're having with drones. Yeah, people are afraid that these drones will just fall out of the sky on the freeway and hurt people. And there's been situations where these have caused some drones have caused problems. Think about a car flying a human being around. That's kind of that's a big vehicle, right? Yeah. So yeah, there needs to be some mm. discussions that way. But though Australia has a lot of desert, I think they'll be okay for testing. Okay. Well, next month, just around the corner, and uh, when we return, we're going to continue the fun here on the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Terry, during the break, you said a word that is not a good idea to say because I get hungry. Yeah. Pizza? Yes. Okay. Well, I'm hungry. The city of Naples, often in the headlines because of its uh, garbage woes and mafia violence, that's what Naples apparently is known for, is celebrating international recognition of its tastier side. This according to a report in the Associated Press. UNESCO on Thursday added art, the art of uh, Nepal... It's Naples, so Neapolitan. Is that where that word comes from? Neapolitan, I think. Neapolitan sure. pizza maker Pizza Alu. I'm saying this all wrong. People are going to get mad at me. Oh, well. <laughs> is to list intangible cultural heritage of humanity. Pizza making was one of dozens of traditions, practices from around the world that got on the UN cultural organization list of forms of expression. Oh, yeah. Right? I express pizza myself making. when I eat pizza. That are. Of importance to humanity. Pizza is now considered art. The Sounds making good. and crafting of pizza is now art. I wouldn't call uh, what I'm doing to the pizza as I'm consuming it art. Right. And most of the pizza probably made in the United States is not considered art. It's considered fast food. But in Naples, Italy, it is art. Oh, sure. I, You know, what my wife does with our pizza is art. But, uh, yeah. The way I scarf it down, not so pretty. Anyway, when we return, we are going to continue the fun here on the Matt Townsend Show. We've got a very interesting interview coming up with Elaine Weiss. But uh, right now, we're going to head over to the BBC News. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who is experiencing a bit of the man flu. I don't know if you've heard much about that, but apparently men are big fakers. Is that what that is? I guess. Or we're, or is it we, actually a, f- a flu strain that has a name that you're now misappropriating? We're either big fakers or uh, we get more sick than women. Yeah. And, and you can't really say that without opening up a can of worms. Not really. Because by, <laughs> by saying it, you're saying they're, they're, they're stronger than us. They're made of more hardier stuff. Well, they can it, resist the sickness, whereas men... Our, we're, you know, our, our immune systems aren't as tough, and therefore we turn into these sniveling, crying little babies that happen when we get sick. Right. And I'm only a sniveling, crying little baby whenever I watch a Pixar film. Really? 
Well, at least Coco. My wife's sick, <laughs> and she's been toughing it out. She took, I mean, she had my kids all day yesterday, all the, you know, things that drive me nuts, and she's just taking care of it while she doesn't feel well. Whereas I get sick, and I'm on the couch like, oh, I don't feel well. And then she's like, oh, let me get you some soup. Yeah, some soup would be good. See, I just turn into this little tiny child yeah. that's sick. I can't just tough it out. She toughs it out. For me, it's like, oh, I'm too sick. I need to lay down and watch some Netflix. Yeah. And that plate of nachos looks really good, too. There you go. Because really, <laughs> nachos will cure any cold. Of course. Well, it'll clear you up. Um, we've got a really big show here today. We've got uh, a guest coming up. We're going to revisit an interview that Dr. Matt did with Elaine Weiss about a bolder, broader approach to education. That's going to be good. Uh, we also have the worst place to hide from the police when they are chasing you. And, uh, huh. yeah, if you're, on, if you're ever on the run, just don't go to this place because you will be caught mm. and uh, you might uh, come out a little smelly too. So again, public service. Yes. That's what, that's what we try to do on the show. All right. Again, uh, we're going to give you more info about the countdowns we have going on. 13 days to Christmas, three days until Star Wars The Last Jedi premieres. And uh, throughout the day, you're going to be hearing all over the news about the special election that's going on today between uh, Doug Jones and Roy Moore. And one of those two men is about to have a very Merry Christmas. Although I would imagine if Roy Moore is elected, he will move on to the next step, which is worrying about whether or not he'll be able to keep that job. Well, yeah. But is that really what you want for Christmas, to be appointed to the Senate? Oh, no. No. It doesn't seem like a job you should want. No. Yeah, I, I'll I'll celebrate Christmas in my way. They can yeah. celebrate it in their own way. <laughs> wow, I don't know. <laughs> Wake up Christmas Day and you have that job and you're like, what did I just do? Oh, I have to go into work? Oh, oh no, I'm they're not going to work. Yeah, right. But yeah. 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 Wow. You do get all kinds of days off, right? And you get to justify it by saying, I'm going home to talk to my constituents. Or they can just fake the man flu. Or Yeah. Anyway, all that fun stuff coming up on the show. But first, let's uh, talk to Terry South, see what's going on around the rest of the country. Ahead of today's special Senate election in uh, her home state of Alabama, Condoleezza Rice on Monday implored voters to reject Roy Moore without explicitly naming him. In a statement to uh, AL.com, that's the Birmingham, Alabama newspaper, the Birmingham-born ex-Secretary of State called the election between Republican uh, An accused pedophile Moore and Democratic nominee Doug Jones is one of the most significant in Alabama history. She added, I encourage you to take a stand for our core principles and for what is right. These critical times require us to come together to reject bigotry, sexism, and intolerance. While continuing not to name Moore, Rice further swiped at him by telling voters that it is imperative for Americans to remain focused on our priorities and not give way to sideshow and antics. I know that Alabamans need an independent voice in Washington, but we must also insist that our representatives are dignified, decent, and respectful of the values that we hold dear. So why is it that these people that are brave enough to come out and say these things about men or women that have alleged to do something, but they'd never name them? Why is it they don't just go all the way? Uh, Yeah, I don't know. Personal Hmm. choice. Maybe they. It's it's kind of like a uh, Lord Voldemort thing. Like we're not even going to dignify with with naming them. Right. Well, it might be might be seen as too partisan. You might be taking too (laughs) much of a side in that one. I'm not saying it's Roy Moore. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
So, yeah, maybe specifics the day before an election might be more necessary. I'm sure. not sure. Uh, another news, a 32-year-old private investigator in Louisiana has pled guilty to attempting to use President Trump's Social Security number to access Trump's tax returns through a U.S. Department of Education financial aid website, the Associated Press reports. Jordan Hamlet was indicted in November 2016, arguing in a court that he had no intent to deceive when he made an effort to access the then-candidate Trump's tax records several weeks earlier. Hamlet claimed that his attempts to obtain the returns had been motivated out of sheer curiosity. Federal Mm. agents initially questioned Hamlet two weeks before the presidential election and were unaware at the time that his attempts to access Trump's tax returns and had had been successful or not. The agents feared a public release of Trump's tax returns could influence the election. The AP writes, so this is the end of that whole legal process as he has been he has pled guilty do to think, something that happened last year. Do you think had those tax returns been made public, do you think it would have swayed the election? No, I think everyone would have gone, see, we knew it. And yeah. it would have been nothing. <laughs> but it was just a sticking point because there are traditional normal things that candidates do and sure. Trump wasn't doing. That was just one of the many he was not doing and so they could harp on him for that. Maybe that's what people really liked about him. There you were know, there were some different. segments, some portions of his taxes that were released at one point or another, and you look at it, and go, oh man, he's rich. Yeah. Great, we kind of knew that. He talks yeah. about it often. He's not hiding the fact that he's rich. <laughs> um, a non-lethal Monday morning explosion in Manhattan's Port Authority bus terminal was the result of a failed pipe bomb. Authorities say mm. the crude device carried by a man. Uh, was uh, reportedly constructed from a pipe battery and matches. When the device activated, one or both of the ends burst off, but the pipe did not explode into shrapnel. Uh, This out of the New York Times. The unsuccessful explosion injured the man, the the person trying to blow it up, but did not result in any any deaths. One report, I had five people that had injuries but nothing life-threatening. Oh. Um, the the video I saw of it uh, the, looked like it was a mistake, and the guys the bomb just went off kind of on his leg, hmm. and he just kind of laid there in pain because he hurt himself and nobody else. <laughs> and wow. he, he did say he's inspired by ISIS and yeah. doing this for the caliphate and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff just that we normally have been hearing, but, you know, they'll just sweep up the debris and move on with the day, I guess. But they're, uh, well, he's... I, what, the, I just saw an update on this on my, my phone here. Uh, Where'd it go? There it is. Police say they have charged the New York City subway bombing suspect with terror, weapons counts, federal charges expected later. So he's in the system. At least he didn't kill anybody. At least he didn't kill anybody. Uh, and finally, you might want to do anything to get rid of bed bugs. Have you ever dealt with bed bugs? Uh, yes, in Russia. Mm. I had to move. I had to move that was apartments. Your, that was your solution? Just move? Well, yeah. I mean, we we rewashed all of our clothes. Right. We cleaned everything. Yep. We took off the because in Russia they have rugs on the wall to keep things warm, right? Okay. Yeah. And so we took that down. We vacuumed it because that's where we were finding them. And mm. uh, yeah, in the end, we just moved. Wow, you kind of gave up, huh? Yeah. Wow. Mm. <laughs> Not this this person it says, but adding fire to the mix didn't end up well for a Cincinnati woman. No, trying oh, to rid no. her apartment of the tiny creeps. As the AP reports, she accidentally started a house fire when trying to kill bed bugs with rubbing alcohol on Friday, causing two hundred fifty thousand dollars in damage and hospitalizing three people with smoke inhalation. Ten people are now homeless because she took down an apartment building where they oh. were living. 
Uh, when I got here, the whole house was on fire. One resident told local news station, I'll start from scratch. It's like a dream. Everything is burnt. I'll start fresh. We can all do that now. It's worth noting that the fire isn't as much as a fluke as one might think. Two weeks ago, a 13-year-old Cincinnati boy set fire to his building in the course of trying to kill bedbugs with alcohol. Eight were left homeless in that situation. The Cincinnati fire chief um, talking about uh, proper bedbug removal uh, gives the tip of get a professional. Stop trying to use fire. Yeah, I was just going to say, I have a friend that just started a bed bug uh, business. They should just call him. A lot of times the solution is take the mattress and throw it out of the house. Right. Yeah, because, you know. Yeah. But, I mean, that, that's not perfect. Once they're anywhere else, they're there also. But usually the mattress is to blame. And those are quite flammable. So. Yeah, I, we we had to move because no matter what we did, uh, my friend kept getting bed bug bites and so we would switch place i would sleep on the floor and he would sleep on the couch right and uh no matter what we did he would still get the bed bugs hmm. yeah Not yeah good. don't mess around with those <laughs> don't light stuff don't on light fire. them on fire so um yesterday mm-hmm. or day before not sure exactly when they released the information but netflix released their viewing statistics of 2017 wow Ooh, this is exciting. From how many movies we watched on average to uh, one user who watched the same movie 365 days in a row. What? Uh, so they have a bunch of facts on that. So, okay. Uh, what's the What do you think is the most popular viewing day for Netflix? Popular viewing day, I'm going to guess Friday because a lot of things are released on Friday and it's a weekend night. The date. Oh, the- they have a specific date. Oh, really? Yeah. So thinking of like holidays, uh. when are people not working? I'm going to say f- the Friday, Black Friday. No. Okay. People are busy. They're shopping. I guess that's true. The most popular day globally for binge watching was January 1st, 2017. Okay. Yeah. Everybody's got the day off. In the United States, it was January 2nd. What? Well, how does that make sense? What do you mean? January, January 2nd. Hold on. I'm looking. Okay. I'm looking. It might have been a weekend. I don't know if my calendar goes back that far. My January, phone, my phone is burning up here. here January second was a Monday. So January second. Oh, that so makes sense because people probably got the, the off. second off because the first was a Sunday. Right. Okay. So there you go. January second. Mexico is the country with the most members watching Netflix every single day. Really. Apparently, they like Netflix quite a bit yeah. in Mexico. The United States is ranked fourth globally for most members to watch Netflix every single day behind Mexico, Canada, and Peru. Now, wait. Is this different? Did you say somebody was watching? I thought you said somebody was watching the same thing There's every one day. person oh, that did. Oh, my goodness. I'm, I'm giving you okay. kind of general okay. statistics. We'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> members watched an average of 60 movies on Netflix this year. That's at least one movie per week. That's a lot. That's a lot. Because there are other streaming devices. You have DVDs. You go to movies. Right. So one every week. Wow, one every that's week. a lot. Uh, communal to, uh, communally, uh, Netflix subscribers across the world watch 140 million hours of programming a day. Wow. Which amounts to about 1 billion hours a week. Oh, my goodness. The highest global rewatch record, and this is what you're talking about, was set by an American who streamed Pirates of the of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, 365 times in 2017. Now, that's a good movie. Um, Is that wake up, hit play, leave the house for some reason? <laughs> or do you think someone actually watched it? I don't know if he was just trying to get on a list like this, 
or if he just, you know, did his ironing while he was watching it, but every day. Every day. I wouldn't even watch my favorite movie in the world every day. Really? Well, yeah, you don't want the novelty to wear off. You don't want to be irritated by it. I guess if you're trying to memorize it word for word, that's weird. Hmm. Weird. Uh, the, in the U.S., the most devoured show, watched more than two hours a day, was American Vandal. Really? Yeah. I don't even know this show. Is this the one that's kind of a comedy? Not sure. Oh. And of all the top ten, there's one of them I've heard of, but again, I haven't seen any of these shows. Okay, what are they? American Vandal. Yeah. 3%. Hmm. 13 Reasons Why. That's the- uh, That's the one- About teen suicide. Right. uh, That caused some controversy because, you know, it's made for teens to watch about teen suicide. Sure. People are like, should we let them watch this? Uh, Anne with an E, which I've never heard of. Yeah, it's like Anne of Green Gables. Okay. Well, well, that's probably why I don't know about it. Uh, It doesn't come up when you're watching a lot of Marvel products. (laughs) Sure. It doesn't, oh, because you watch that, you know. Yeah. Uh, Riverdale, which is a show on the CW, but I've never watched it. Yeah. Is that the one with all, like, Archie? Yeah, it's it's Archie and his friends, but it's a modern retelling, and there's a murder mystery, of course. Ooh. Uh, In Governorable? Governorable? I don't know what that is. Travelers, okay. The Keepers, The OA, and The Confession Tapes. These are all the top 10 most the, watched shows the on Netflix. The Keepers, isn't that kind of like making no a murderer? I think it is. Got no idea. Globally, hmm. the most savored show was watched less than, uh, less than two hours a day was The Crown. Oh, of course. Yep. In the U.S., the most savored show was also The Crown, followed by... Uh, Neo Yiko, which I'm not sure what that is, mm. and a series of unfortunate events, which is another show. Those are the the most. Have you seen any of The Crown? No. I, like. I told my wife about it. I said, "Hey, we should watch this." And I came home one day, and she was watching it without me. Yeah, it's really uncomfortable because it deals with like the the queen and, her, and the king and the uh, her husband, who was yeah. the king, but the, yeah. her husband's relationship and. He he's some, not real comfortable being the sideshow to her. There's I'm, some tension you know, there. There's some tension there. So that's kind of what the first couple are about. It's interesting. Hmm. Uh, the U.S. top shows that got us cheating. Uh oh. In what way? The Orange is the New Black, Stranger Thing, and Narcos. Those are the ones where you're oh watching ahead type of thing. Yeah, not that kind of thing. Like watching know? it without your significant other. Yes. Yeah, so the so show's so good, we watched ahead of our significant other. Now I brought that up on the show. That's right. And how that is a major offense in a marriage. Yeah. We're watching a show together, and then all of a sudden you come in and, you know, my wife was watching the show, and she just, I mean, she was like five episodes ahead. She goes, oh, we can go back. I go, no, it's over. We're supposed yeah. to discover and experience this together. Forget it. We're done. Wow. You severed ties. Yep. With the show, not your wife. No, she's still around. But, uh, yeah, we, don't, we stopped watching. I can't even remember what show it was. See, that's might how been, trivial it was. Might have been lost or something. See, a lot of our arguments are like that. We yeah. don't we don't know what the argument was about. Yeah. And and, it, and after the fact, it's like, yeah, whatever. It's fine. Sure. But I keep bringing it up. Oh, of course. And I go, you wronged me. You're gonna. This is your uh, ace in the hole, your, right. the ace up your sleeve that you're going to bring out whenever you need to. And I'm like, because of that, I get to buy Doritos this week. <laughs> My Super Bowl only Dorito ban is now... Lifted for this week because you violated that agreement. Wow. So wait a minute. I thought this was a self-inflicted ban. Uh, it is. I kind of okay. lump everything together and kind of toss it around. <laughs> she ignores most of it because she knows it's nonsense. But <laughs> like last night, I, we're watching a, uh, a show and I pause it and I go, okay, we need to talk. 
It's the elephant in the room. Sure. She went, yeah. And I went, your attitude really needs to change. And she just started laughing. Whoa. Because, you know, I'm me and that's how I she do She gets you. She's like, oh, you're a moron. Just turn the TV back on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the shows that brought us together, the most watched together shows. Ooh, Stranger Things has got to be on there. Yep, that's number one. Yep. 13 Reasons Why. Hmm. A series of unfortunate events. Okay. Star Trek Discovery. I didn't even think people were watching a series of unfortunate events. Gilmore Girls, because they launched that final, yeah. that, that latest season, I guess. Uh, Riverdale, Fuller House, Chef's Table, Atypical, and Anne with an E. Wow. Those are the most watched together. I'm not sure how they know. Yeah, how do they know? Because you just hit play. I mean, they don't have some sort of way to tell who's watching. Right. So, but they 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 claim those are the movie the shows that brought us together, family, couples, whatever, watching as a group. Maybe they just took a look at social media and saw what people were talking about. I don't know. They have numbers. Hmm. So I teased earlier. Uh, I'm going to give you a place not to run to when you're uh, on the, when the police are chasing you. When you're on the run. Right. So if uh, you've just robbed a bank, don't. Flee into a porta potty. Police are saying hmm. that there's this 41 year old guy, Stephen Spolidoro, who walked into a bank, demanded money, and fled with only about $1,000 in cash. But an off duty officer in the area provided authorities with the description of Spolidoro's vehicle. It was spotted in Boston, and police say Spolidoro abandoned his vehicle and ran away on foot. They eventually located him hiding in a porta potty near the TD Garden area. Hmm. Don't forget to flush. Yeah, you. There, you'd think there'd be a better place to hide. Sure. I mean, oh, not only are you going to smell horrible, mm. but there's no. Uh, what's your escape plan? You, you know, you don't have one. You're stuck. You're in a closet, essentially. And especially if they saw you go in. And by that point, they usually have some sort of canine coming after you. Yeah. So you're stuck. You can just picture the cops sitting in their car just busting up laughing like, where does this guy think he's going? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, don't hide in the porta potty. Just give me a minute. I'll be right out. (laughs) Oh, goodness. And you might come out with some blue all over you, too. Yeah. Well, that, that'd be the thing. Maybe the cops just feel like, hey, let's tip it over. I guess the, the more important lesson is uh, don't rob a bank. Well, I mean, you could go there. Yeah. Or at least if you are going to rob a bank, A, don't run into a porta potty. Mm-hmm. And B, try to get more than $1,000. Well, right? part of that is they purposely don't keep a lot of cash like right there in the till. It's kind of in the back in the vault. I mean, how does so, it work these days with these with these bulletproof glass panes that are up? Right. How, I mean, what do they have to do? Do they just threaten the people in the banks? I guess. I'm not sure. Do they just ask them nicely? I have not Please. Uh, thought about robbing a bank lately. So Another thing to think of, what if the bank teller is just like, oh, all we have is $1,000. Apparently that's, that's all what, I can give you. That's what they did, or or, or was his <laughs> robbery interrupted, or did he panic, or it just said he fled with a thousand dollars cash. Hmm. I would think they'd have more than that. Yeah. Anyway, that won't, that won't even cover bail. Things to think about, but again, coming full circle, maybe just don't rob a bank.
Just trying to keep you more educated here on the Matt Townsend Show. And speaking of that, when we return, we're going to be revisiting an interview that Dr. Matt did with Elaine Weiss about a broader, bolder approach to education. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. You know, last year, the Washington Post published an article that revealed that an analysis of 2013 federal data revealed that for the first time in over 50 years, the majority of U.S. public school students came from low-income families. Now, what is being done to help out these students? And how is the poverty at home affecting students' abilities to succeed in school? These are tough, tough questions, and they're being asked and addressed by the Broader, Bolder Approach to Education National Campaign. And a few months back, uh, Dr. Matt Townsend spoke with Dr. Elaine Weiss, the National Coordinator for the Broader, Bolder Approach to Education, or BBA, to discuss these questions. Matt began the interview by asking what the effect of poverty on a person's ability to maneuver through the educational system is impact, and we've actually known this for quite a while. Um, James Coleman, who was tasked by Congress in 1966 with trying to figure out why achievement gaps were happening then, um, much to his own surprise, uh, discovered that much of the problem did not actually reside in schools. And when we think about what schools were like and how segregated they were in 66, that says quite a bit. Um, What Coleman reported back was that he believed that more than half, roughly two-thirds of the drivers of achievement gaps uh, were family and community factors related to poverty and education. Hmm. Um, No one since Coleman has seriously disputed that, but we do know a lot more. Um, We know a lot more about how poverty and education interact. Um, And more recently, we even have neuroscience looking at how um, continued living in poverty, especially when kids are very young, when there's the most formative years of brain development, actually has physical impact on your brain development. Oh, wow. In other words, this kind of living in poverty, living in toxic stress, if we think about kids living in families where, um, as I think you guys just broadcast, um, parents are working full-time, maybe even more than one job. They still aren't sure that they can put a square meal on the table all the time. They aren't sure they can buy shoes. Mm. Um, They often aren't sure they can pay rent. Um, Living in that kind of stress, especially as a very young kid, is what they're calling toxic. Um, and obviously has huge impacts. Um, and then there are uh, the many others. There's the fact that uh, kids whose parents can't afford to be around obviously can't afford good child care. So those right. kids don't get the nurturing and stimulation. Um, those kids are more likely to be sick, less likely to see a doctor. So they miss school more often. And when they're in school, they're not as able to focus because they're not as healthy. Yeah. Um, oh. And there are myriad other examples. And it doesn't, um, because some people would sit there and say, well, just... I mean, some people were poor and they just pulled themselves up by the bootstraps, but it's it's not like that. I mean, if the if the majority of these people don't have a good meal, and I we did uh, have somebody on recently that just feeding them better meals, you know, through the WIC program or other programs, all of a sudden uh, their their scores go up, their abilities go up, but just the ability to have a parent have enough time to sit down with you and help you on your homework. I mean, that's a whole other thing. Or have a quiet place to do homework. Right. Um, when you're talking about kids 
forget the extreme, we've now got more kids than we've ever seen in this country that live in homeless shelters, okay? So we can assume they don't have a quiet right. space to do homework, let alone sort of the mental bandwidth to do it. But if you're living in an overcrowded apartment and you're living with two families and you've got a total of two bedrooms, you have no place to do homework. Mm-hmm. And if your electricity gets turned off, you don't have right. a place to do homework. Yeah, and I mean, it's hard anyway to do homework with your kids, especially like in high school. They're bringing home math assignments, and I'm like, what? What is that? Yeah, all of us. So, I mean, I, it's, it's the strange phenomenon, even for somebody that is educated and isn't in poverty, it's hard anyway. Is Now, we've already tried to address these issues, right? I mean, this has been... This is the whole no child left behind kind of thing, wasn't it? Weren't we already – because we've known this since the 60s. uh, What's different about what you're trying to do versus what we've been doing the last 10 years, 15 years? Well, to be clear, for the last 10 years, we've frankly sort of been doing the opposite of this. So we did have an era, post-Coleman, post-Brown versus Board of Education, where we understood as a country pretty much – that this was a big issue, that mm. poverty posed problems. And we responded with some really powerful policies. We had a war on poverty, for example. Um, we desegregated our schools, and we um, passed the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, ESEA, which is what it was called before No Child Left Behind. Um, and it was passed explicitly as a civil rights bill to help schools tackle and mitigate the impacts of poverty. And it did have a huge impact. So we have to be careful here not to say it didn't work. Right? Um, did it do the whole thing? No. But over those 20 years, we cut black-white achievement gap in half. Okay? So it had a very major impact. Yeah. The problem is we then declared that because it hadn't fixed everything that it didn't work, and we stopped doing it. Yeah. We stopped declaring a war on poverty. We stopped desegregating schools. And we radically ratcheted back the support for poor schools and eventually transitioned um, to No Child Left Behind, which has a very different emphasis, where the emphasis is on um, we need higher standards and we need greater accountability and actually less support to enable schools to reach those. Hmm. And the result has been twofold. One is we stopped closing that race achievement gap. It's been stagnant for about the past 30 years. And meanwhile, as income inequality has grown in this country, the income-based gap has exploded and is now more than twice as big as the race-based gap. Golly. It's, yes. Isn't that funny? I mean, that's how, that's how these systems work, right? We, we, it's, it's, it's productively moving one you know, part of the, the equation, the problem we need to solve, and then somebody else comes in, changes it, and throws out everything else, and we go, I guess, push stronger, you know, stronger standards. I guess more pressure was then being put, I guess, with no child left behind on the teachers, right? Then, and, and focus was more on the teachers than the students? Well, tremendous, uh, tremendous pressure on teachers. And it's interesting because the past decade, I think, has really been dominated by a perspective that uh, those who, the strongest proponents of this, let's focus uh, very heavily on standards and accountability and um, less on poverty, actually coined the term no excuses to explain mm. this. And um, what they meant by no excuses was a really great teacher can do this. Um, there should be no excuses. We can't excuse bad schools um, by raising the issue of poverty. Now, unfortunately, in practical terms, what that meant was that everyone except for teachers was excused. Right. The number of kids in poverty, who, as you know, are much, much more than we've ever had before. Right. Um, 
and also for the impact of that poverty. So what it did was teachers have really always been on the front lines of trying to counter the effects of poverty, but now we stuck them on the front lines with no backup system, and then we blame them. And that's really what this decade, unfortunately, and I think mostly inadvertently, has come to be. Wow. And then all this, yeah. We're at a point where we can really, we have an opportunity now to change that. And that's really what you're trying to do with a broader, bolder approach, right? Yes. That that is exactly what we're trying to do. Uh, We feel, and I think those of us across the education uh, space feel that the, finally, after many years, um, the reauthorization of ESEA um, from No Child Left Behind to ESSA or the Every Student Succeeds Act provides us some really key opportunities to shift gears. Hmm. Um, It pulls back a lot on the emphasis on testing. Um, It doesn't attach as many consequences to testing, so there's not nearly as much time. There doesn't need to be as much time spent or pressure attached to tests. Um, Teachers can focus on the other things that they've long been wanting to do. Um, But just as important, it recognizes that Every layer of government has an important and relevant role to play in education, and we need to make sure that those are done correctly. So it gives states and districts and even individual schools more responsibility and authority to figure out how education works best. Um, It also, however, gives them a lot of responsibility. And so ESSA offers us some real opportunities, but it also presents some real challenges um, for school districts and states that maybe don't have the capacity or maybe don't have the political will to take these tests. Mm. Okay, this is good stuff. We're speaking with Dr. Elaine Weiss, um, who is walking us through uh, a a new movement, really, a a broader, bolder approach to education. She is – you can find out more information about it, by the way, at boldapproach.org. Talk to us again about what what your proposals are going to be. What are some of the things – that we could be doing to make it broader, more and bolder, and make sure that we're we are tackling the poverty issues as we're also trying to educate people. So we see this as um, sort of three intertwined sets of policy changes that need to happen. Um, the first is we need to close these out of school opportunity gaps that we've been talking about because opportunity gaps are really the problems driving achievement gaps. So we need to ensure that all kids have access. Uh, and their parents have good access to early childhood experiences and supports, um, that they have health support, that they have nutrition support, as you've emphasized, and also that in the hours that they're out of school, they have enriching opportunities. Because I know that my kids have great opportunities, but it's expensive and challenging, and many kids don't. Um, We need to enhance in-school equity. Um, Another problem is that we have a funding system in this country that really unfortunately exacerbates and compounds the disadvantages that kids growing up in poverty have rather than compensating for them. Uh, we need to focus on building strong teacher, teachers and leaders in schools rather than mostly weeding out the bad ones. Of course, it's important to weed out bad ones, but it should be mostly about growing, developing and supporting them and also providing incentives for them to serve in tougher schools, which right now, as we've discussed, we make actually look like a really bad deal. Huh, yeah. um, we need accountability systems that foster all of that. Um, and we need all schools to be transparent about how they treat kids and how they're educating kids, whether they're charter schools or regular district public schools. 
And then finally, and I think this is really critical, we need to bridge some of the gaps between schools and communities, which means we need to be paying attention to issues like race and segregation, both in school and out of school, because they have a very big impact on how all kids learn, especially in this diverse world. We need our kids to have diverse schools that model for them. Um, and we need to ensure that community voices have a central place at the policy table. The policies need to be built on community needs and assets and guidance and not sold to them or put on them. Yeah. How do you, I mean, that's that's a huge list, even just the beginning of your list, which was about closing the gap of, uh, of out-of-school opportunities. I mean, just the concept of getting early childhood child care and maybe, uh, you know, meals for these families or for these children, just that, or after-school programs, every one of those, I'm sure you're getting pushback from other people, right? I don't know so much that we get pushback. I would actually say more that there's widespread agreement that these things are needed. They um, need to be done. Very, very little opposition today to the concept that if we don't get kids ready for kindergarten, they won't do well in kindergarten. I think there's practically universal, very broad bipartisan support. The problem is we don't do it. Okay. Um, so we need to shift our national focus and say, just as very few parents in this country could afford a high-quality K-12 education if they had to do it on their own dime, very few, if any, can afford quality child care or quality pre-K. Um, we have to be doing that. We have to model, look at states. Um, and there are some great There's Oklahoma, Vermont. Um, New Jersey that are serving either all low-income kids or even all kids in very high-quality preschool. Uh, we're the wealthiest country in the world. This is not something we can't do. It's right. something that we're not doing. Is it? And is that political will? What is that? Why? Why are we not doing it? If if the research is there, if it was succeeding before, where is? is I guess that's when you get back down into the community support and get parents more involved, people more involved, talking with their legislators. Part of it is definitely that. Um, part of it is, you know, the, the culture in this country has long been much more individualistic and family-oriented than societally-oriented. And as a result, part of the perception is that this is a family issue. Um, luckily for us, uh, or and unluckily, there's much more poverty than we used to have. So there's much more understanding that it's not possible for families to take this on. Right. Uh, but there's also a lot more research just showing that even for middle-class families, it's out of reach. So I think as there's better data, as there's better research, um, the political will, I think, is coming together. We do have a lot more of the support than we had, but we need to make some really big jumps, mm -hmm. not little incremental steps, but saying every kid needs quality child care. It's, it also seems like... Because those in poverty don't have time, don't have the maybe the resources, the information to maybe even go make their own fight, right? So we're not hearing from the squeaky wheel necessarily. We just are experiencing it in the system. This is very true, and I would say that even those of us who are not living in poverty often don't have the time to fully right. educate ourselves on a wide range of issues and then push on them. It's, an, it's a full-time job for many people. Um, but... We are seeing uh, one of the things that we're doing at BBA is we are exploring and highlighting cases of communities where this is happening, you know, from birth or from early childhood all the way through high school, the communities engaged, evidence-based poverty mitigation strategies are in place, 
after school is available and aligned with what goes on during the school day. Meals are built into everything as needed. Um, and so we see that this does happen. And when we encourage communities rather than squelching them to do this, and when we align policies with what they want, it can happen and be incredibly successful. Mm. And we really, really lift up every kid. I mean, in these places, they are narrowing achievement gaps. They're boosting achievement. Uh, they're seeing great high school graduation rates. And they're seeing really uh, enriched kids come out of this. That's powerful. What would you say, as we kind of wrap this up, we have about another minute or so, what would you say, what should we be doing as parents and those that want to become or or be more involved, become part of the solution? I would say one of the things you could do is, as you just suggested, go to our website, boldapproach.org, have a look at the case studies of the places that we're looking at. And they're very diverse, from small rural places to large urban places that are doing this. Um, feel free to contact the folks there. Look at some of the institutions that are involved. Look at the churches, uh, the businesses, the YMCAs, the Boys and Girls Clubs. Those places exist in all of your communities. Reach out to them. Find out how you can be involved. And when this issue comes up locally and at the state level, please weigh in and tell, tell your representatives that we need these public investments. Yeah, love that. that and that's, again, get involved and get informed. That's what we try to do on the show. Dr. Elaine Weiss, thank you so much. And again, everybody go to boldapproach.org. It's a great uh, resource for you to learn more about really what does work, what helps. Thanks again, Dr. Weiss. We're going to have to take this on sometime, aren't we? When you think about how we will do this, you're going to pay and make this work with our children now, or you're going to pay and have to make it work later with an uneducated, more impoverished workforce. This has got to be dealt with. And again, we can we can cry the principle of accountability, but there's also this concept of fairness and ability. Um, I always teach where there's a will, there's a way to make this work. And we, we can find the will. Uh, we just have to find the way. The the will might simply be understanding the, the problem in a more broad way. Instead of just thinking that people that want to get educated could get educated and people that don't, don't, it's not like that. Imagine waking up in a one-bedroom apartment with five of you there. Imagine having your dad, if you have one at home, already gone to work. He's left at five in the morning to go drive – a truck or a bus and um, mom wakes you up and you're all frantically trying to hurry to get to school and mom's got to get to work and she basically wakes everybody up and you have to drop off your little sister at the neighbor who's a relative that'll babysit your sister. You don't see her for the rest of the day, and then you have to run to school. And hopefully, as a 10-year-old, you remember to make something to eat. And hopefully what you grabbed was more than a Pop-Tart. But it probably isn't. And you get to school, and then you're supposed to remember your bag and your everything else. And did you get that paper signed by your parents so we can go to the all we and off we go. And then that child is going to sit there and hopefully have done their homework the night before with a house that's too busy, too loud, too noisy, without sometimes adult supervision, and they're supposed to make it? 
And then your big complaint is going to be, yeah, well, if they cared, that 10-year-old would just get her done. No. So they don't have the they don't have the health. They don't have they they're not being their basic needs aren't being dealt with. If they have a learning disability, nobody will even know about it till many years into school. And that will only be found by a teacher or a school district. So it's not it's not even, right? It's not an even playing field, and this is then what goes on. This is the pain. And it's not happening in just one, you know, apartment. It's happening in half of the kids attending public school. It's a big deal. So don't just think you can discount it. And when you sit there and you you might be you know, doing a lot better and your kids are going to these public schools, but in the end, too, they still have half of their classmates that are suffering like this. So how do you fix it? Well, let's just let our politicians do it. That's what they're here for. Have you looked at your politicians lately? No, it's time to get involved. It's time to pick up your game and get involved and care and start understanding that problems are more complex than Republican or Democrat, black or white, rich or poor. Let's just integrate everybody. Just integrate. Well, great. We integrate, but we still have poverty issues and cultural issues. And I mean, how many times would that that would be fantastic to have better integration and uh, have your children be able to see multicultural uh, families and multicultural experience? I think it'd be fantastic. And it still won't solve the problem that some kids, half the kids there aren't eating. Imagine you going to work and not having a meal and not going to have a meal because you don't even know who's paying for lunch. It's tough. It's tough. So let's become part of the solution, right? I don't want to just sit there and complain about it, but we got to do something. And uh, my goal is just to help you at least understand it's a bigger issue. It's a bigger issue. And our hearts are big enough to bring in the compassion to create some of these solutions. They're complicated. I get it. And there's a lot of people fighting for the money behind all this. But it doesn't mean you can't have a heart and you can't care. You should care and get involved. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. If you hear that song, it means we're going to do some more empty news here. We got some good ones here. A couple of stories that involve younger children. An Ohio woman is facing several charges after police officers reported finding her riding in the back seat of an SUV Saturday night with an 11-year-old girl behind the wheel. See, now that's just wrong. Brandy Cross, 19, pleaded not guilty to charges including endangering children, contributing to uh, the unruliness of delinquency of a child, oh, wow. and criminal endangering. Contributing to the unruliness. It's a little wordy. Contributing yeah. to the unruliness of delinquency of a child. Hmm. She's I being... think I do that daily. <laughs> That's a great point. <laughs> Come on. I think I do, too. Uh, the bond is set at $1,500. Huh. Wow. She had a good reason, though. She has a good reason. Uh, the 19-year-old indicated that she knew that the other young person was underage and, of course, not old enough to be driving a car, but the 19-year-old herself did not possess a license. See? So she thought it was better to let the 11-year-old uh, drive. Solid reasoning. 
The 19-year-old knew that you needed a license to drive. She didn't have a license, so I'm going to let the 11-year-old drive. It sounds like the 11-year-old is definitely more responsible than the 19-year-old, for sure. Wow. And I'm sure the 11-year-old is like, yeah, sure, I'll drive. (laughs) Absolutely. Sounds good to me. Uh, Here's another one. The Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources uh, sold 10 hunting licenses to infants. Oh, yeah. After uh, (laughs) Governor Scott Walker signed a bill that eliminated the state's minimum hunting age. Mm -hmm. What? Yeah. Walker signed a Republican bill on November 13th doing away with the 10-year-old minimum age to participate in a mentored hunt. The DNR released data Tuesday that shows the agency has sold... 1,800 uh, mentored hunt licenses licenses to children age nine or younger through Sunday. Yeah. The vast majority of those 1,800 licenses, uh, just over 1,000, went to nine-year-olds. Hmm. 52 went to children under five, and 10 going to children under a year old. Do you think people are just being facetious? They're just yeah. doing this as a joke? Why is the government telling me what to do? That's wow. what the, 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 you know, the source of that comes from. But I could see you want to take a nine-year-old with you hunting, I I guess. I'm not sure. Sh- you know. But yeah, the infants is just people just getting a license because you can. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I know we joked about uh, endangering children, but I wouldn't go that far. Certainly not. But I guess I can't decide what's worse. Having my five-year-old drive a car or shoot a gun. Uh, Neither one sounds very good. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We're going to head over to Terry South, who's got some sports news for us. There's, or it's something I should be talking to BYU Sports Nation about. That's anyway. kind of my idea with this. <laughs> uh, in sports, you'll find there are a lot of um, stupid rules. We'll just call it that. I was trying to think of a more eloquent way to put it, but the rules, sure. they're just kind of stupid. They're aggressively pointless. They're rules that seem to exist not to solve any problems, but simply to make things more complicated. Okay. Golf is full of those rules. Have you ever watched sure. a golf tournament? People are pacing away from grass because it's three inches taller than the rest of the grass. Just ridiculous rules. There, There is one thing. In January 1st, 2018, the U.S. Golf Association will end the practice of allowing viewers at home to call in penalties on players. Really? They've had situations in major tournaments where someone on uh, sitting at home goes, "Oh, he moved. He didn't put his ball back in the exact spot it should be when he, you know, was moving some debris or yeah. he bumped this leaf out of the way and he shouldn't have done that." And so they get on the phone, they call the clubhouse at the 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 golf course that the event is being held at and they complain and then that word trickles down to the people on the course and then they like the the guys like three holes beyond, and then they the rules guy comes up and they they'll assess like a two three stroke penalty because we watched we reviewed the tape and you did this, hmm. and you're just like oh. every single golfer has two or three guys watching him at every second of the tournament. Sure, if the guys on the field don't catch it, the people at home shouldn't be be able to get on the phone and call in a foul and make him assess a penalty. No. That can, should just be handled on the field. Right. Can you imagine if baseball or football worked that yeah, way? if you just called into crazy. the stadium and then the ref is like, oh, there's a penalty. And we, you know, No, he can't yeah. do that. So what they're going to do, two-part solution. So again, they're making it more difficult. Instead of just not answering the phone, right. 
they get two. The governing body announced Monday they're going to align one or more officials to monitor the video broadcast of a competition to help identify and resolve rules issues as they arise, and they'll discontinue any steps to facilitate or consider viewer call-ins as part of the rules decision process. Yeah, you are a viewer. You cannot try to enforce the rules. Yeah, that's why they have the officials at the event. Otherwise, what are you paying these guys for? Right. It's just wow. when I first heard that, and someone got on a, they picked up their phone, called the clubhouse, <laughs> and then somebody in the clubhouse went out onto the course and told somebody what the problem was, and then they they didn't just say. Uh, We've moved on because they were yeah. three holes beyond, and it actually affected because the guy was in the lead, and they gave him a three-stroke penalty. And he's looking at him like, "Who did what? Someone called in from like yeah. Milwaukee or something? What are we doing? These games are way too long to have to deal with this type of issue." Yeah. So it says viewers at home armed with reams of slow motion replay called in penalties for Tiger Woods at the 2013 Masters, for Dustin Johnson at the 2016 U.S. Open, and for Lexi Thompson this year at the ANA Inspiration, which is a, an LG, LGPGA, LPGA event. Yeah. And all of these resulted in penalties. All of these sort of affected the outcome. And you're just like, it shouldn't happen. Shouldn't happen. So they've changed the rule. No more of that. Just watch the watch the the tournament. You're not a rule official. Could be worse. Could be like what Brian Regan talked about in one of his routines, where somebody called that because uh, there was a bird on the audio that wasn't couldn't have been indigenous to the area. Anyway, yeah, let's not do anything that could make these games longer than they already are because they are long, but we still love them. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with a, our guest who's going to be talking to us about stress during the holidays. BBC News is up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who's got a case of the man flu, or at least that's what I'm saying. Uh, (laughs) He's probably legitimately sick. I wonder if his wife's letting him get away with anything, though. Anyway, I'm joined here by uh, Terry South, our wonderful producer, and now Sean O'Neill, who's uh, come onto the show to lend a hand to get things back on track. Yeah, just don't ask any questions. (laughs) Well, that's the first thing I was going to do, actually, because we have a guest coming up here in a few minutes, Dr. Paul Jenkins, who's going to talk to us a little bit about how – give us some ideas on how we can handle with holiday stress. Ah, I wish wish that wasn't even a thing, that we experienced stress during the holidays. You know, it should – things should be more low-key. We should just be enjoying time with family, and yet we can't forget that there's still work. There are presents we got to buy for people to get ready for the holidays. We got to make sure to cram in all of our movies. Why can't you make the presents? Like paper mache or we don't have any time. We don't There's have only the time. twelve days till Christmas. Thirteen days till Christmas. You can't count today, can you? And I'm not very good at multitasking. I can't make. I can't wrap and watch a movie. Well, no, wrapping and watching a movie is a very tough thing to do because you got to think right. of the rhyme that's coming up for the wrap. And watching the movie at the same time wouldn't. <laughs> Wait, the rhyme? What do you yeah. mean? 
Wow. Well, if you, uh, come on, he just did on. a you. This is something you do every day. You're gonna, you're gonna, you're not gonna bust the rhyme. words, rapping with the rap. Oh, I got. I, mm, yeah. There are two definitions to the word rap. I rap every How day. How did you miss? No, but you make those like <laughs> wordplay things every day. So he does a wordplay, oh. and you just totally get lost. I'm so hmm. disappointed. <laughs> I think it, I think it depends on where you're standing in the room. Is that room. what it is? If I'm standing behind the Matt's, board, Matt's obviously confused most days. So you're in his spot. So there you go. I've wow. got an update on man flu. Uh oh, it's yes. real apparently. Uh oh. I, I think it's a Star Wars flu. The so-called <laughs> the so-called man flu has been a punchline for de- decades, but according to one expert, yes, it may be time to stop taking it lightly. Doctor Kyle Sue, a Canadian doctor whose findings are published in the British Medical Journal, so these are published findings. Wow! Just because they're published doesn't mean they're true. Be quiet! Don't tell anybody. <laughs> they claim that psychological differences between men and women can lead to different responses to colds and viruses. Oh yeah. So they're saying this is shown in the fact that they have men have worse symptoms that last longer and they're more likely to be hospitalized and more likely to die from flu symptoms. Men are. Oh, my goodness. Right? Says the doctor reviewed several studies involving both animals and humans and found that testosterone could dampen the immune system's response to influenza while female sex hormones could actually boost it. He also cited surveys that found men can take up to twice as long as women to recover from viral illnesses. Wow. Maybe, because I've been having this weird stomach thing that I had a couple of times. No, no, that's not the same thing. Well, le, le, no, hear no. me out. No. Hear me out. Mm. So I, it took me like four or five days to get through it. Yeah. My wife had a little bit of it. Yeah. it took her like a day. Really? Yeah. So maybe there is know. some truth to this. And the researchers saying this isn't about a weaker immune system. This mm. is about testosterone and what it does to your uh, what what it does to your system as you're fighting the flu. Interesting. So it's interesting. Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. I, I think we're going to see an increase in uh, in fake illnesses from men because of this study. You don't think so? No. Because so, now they're giving us free reign to so milk it. Health to milk officials that say sickness. that health officials say that while it's too early to tell how severe this flu season will be, the main strain circulating tends to cause more deaths and hospitalizations than others. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I guess things, you can't, can't. There's things to watch. Can't fake death. I guess you can, but yeah. then your insurance company will come after you. But I mean, there is like the like Matt was like, I kind of feel like death. That's different than when actual. When did he but say that? You, you, get... could, you could see the subtext of the text. <laughs> he doesn't feel well. Yeah. How do you get to take a – are sick day is man flu covered by sick days? Um, it, it's, it's an evolving policy, so possibly. Huh. Okay. Yeah. So, or is that a vacation day? I've never heard of man flu. Today was really the first <laughs> I've ever heard of that phrase, man flu. So. Hmm. Okay. So, Terry... It sounds like a Marvel character does, in Man, Black Panther. Man flu. Before we hear what's going on around the rest of the country, mm. Sean O'Neill, who has seen the film Star Wars The yes. Last Jedi, yes, has, last night, has, yes. has graciously yeah. agreed to give us a recap of the first five minutes of the film. Okay. Sean. <laughs> so, letters scrolling up from the bottom of the screen. Exactly. Okay. Yes. yes uh, do you happens. see space? Yes. Um, and they pan down in space. Oh, okay. I think I think that's the traditional. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I know. Last time they kind of tricked you a little bit. There was like some weird angles with some of the yeah. star destroyers and planets yeah. and stuff. Okay. Just, you well, know. you got to remember, this is following um, the Force Awakens, right. not not Rogue One. True. Rogue One was a different. 
different yeah, timelines. I can't tell yeah. you how many times I've had to explain that to my wife. Oh, yes. Um, and, you know, it's very confusing. Because Rogue One came out after Force Awakens, yep. and you have to try to figure out, okay, Rogue well, One was like 3.7 well, episodes. Three, yeah, 3.8, but yeah, yeah. whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just, my, my daughter actually just watched that for the first time this last weekend. Rogue so, One? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Can, can you give me a one-word answer to a question? Okay. Were the Porgs annoying? Actually, no. Okay, good. Yeah, but that was two words. I, that that actually surprised me. <laughs> That's fine. That's all I needed to know. No, okay, they were not. So, I, 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 but a one word review for this movie. Well, I can't make a one word review, but uh, traditionalists will love this film. Good. <gasps> okay. Okay. I can't. Um, you said can't too say much. Anymore. Okay. You now, said too much. now for the last it. five minutes of the film. Credits. <laughs> There's a big scroll of credits oh, running. I was hoping I'm you sure it's more than five spoil minutes. Spoil that too. for me. But there aren't like any post-credit no, scenes no, or anything no, like they that. They don't do that with Star Wars movies. Oh, thank goodness. It's it's of a, a higher quality of movie. <laughs> wow. Am I hearing yeah. this from you? I mean, I understand where the Marvel movies are. Wow. They're awesome, but they're not of a certain quality. They're, That's uh, they true. They exist in their own space. I wonder if we're going to yes. see lower box office numbers for these films because used to be that a Star Wars film was this big event, but now they they may just be more like Marvel movies where you see them with more frequency. I think they're making this one into a big event, and it's, uh, well, yeah. We got Mark Hamill in it. Yes, okay. he is there. Hmm. All right, he, Terry. And he's not just at the end of the movie this time. Right, right. Before Terry or before Sean spoils anything else you for us. You can feel it coming, please. can't you? Yes. Why don't I you want t- to talk about it Tell us what's time. going on around the rest of the country. During a rally for Doug Jones in Birmingham on Monday, Alabama native Charles Barkley urged voters in the state to support their former federal prosecutor in his bid to become the first Democratic senator to represent the state since the 90s. At some point, we got to stop looking like idiots to the nation, the NBA and Auburn University legend said. I love Alabama, but at some point, we got to draw a line in the sand and show that we're not a bunch of idiots. Jones' opponent, Republican Roy Moore, has espoused controversial views on many topics and has been accused by several women of of inappropriate conduct when they were teenagers and when he was in his 30s. uh, Barkley said he's embarrassed that Moore is even on the ballot. If somebody told you guys... Put this election in a movie script. You wouldn't throw it. You would throw it in the trash. He adds, "You'd say there's no way possible this other dude could be leading in the polls." Now, technically, he isn't. Fox News says that Doug Jones has a ten-point lead, hmm. right? But then all the other polling in state kind of sees it all neck and neck. And what it really says is nobody knows because mm-hmm. it's a special election. It's going to be low turnout. It's a couple weeks before Christmas, and there was a large portion of the state that was like, there's an election tomorrow? Really? Aren't, What's going aren't on? they voting today? Yeah, today. Yeah. Voting. Yeah. It is. The ballot boxes are open. Right. It is kind of crazy, though, because if all these things are true, it's it's kind of embarrassing that he got he's getting this much support. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I did hear a quote from Charles Barkley, though. What did he say? Terrible. 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 <laughs> uh, the man accused of detonating a pipe bomb in a busy Manhattan transit hub on Monday morning had pled and um, pledging allegiance to the Islamic State terror group. Law enforcement said he uh, was seriously injured in the attack, told investigators he set the bomb off in retaliation for the U.S. military's airstrikes on ISIS in Syria. This according to the New York Times this morning, he pled uh, he was charged, pled guilty. 
he did it. I mean, they have the video, and he's oh. hurt because the bomb went off on his leg, and he built Ouch. the bomb off of an internet website. Which so this isn't like a Law and Order episode. No, this is is pretty pretty was quick. This, was this meant to be some sort of a kamikaze uh, bombing? Yeah, this is a. Uh, he was going to take himself a suicide out? bomber. He was trying to be a suicide bomber, wow. but he didn't have enough explosives, and then I think it went off prematurely and. That'd be kind of depressing. He injured I can't five even, other people. I can't even be good at being a bad guy. It's one of those ones where ISIS probably won't acknowledge it because it's just kind of embarrassing. Lack of execution. Yeah. <laughs> uh, other news. Authorities in Southern California on Monday extended a fire warning for Los Angeles and Ventura counties as meteorologists said dangerous winds may stoke the flames of several wildfires until at least Wednesday. The news came from the Thomas Fire, the largest of the least of at least five fires scorching the region. Uh, close in around Montecito in Santa Barbara County, sending people fleeing and considering uh, uh, everything's covered in ash. If you've seen the photos, mm. it's crazy. The fire, which was only 20% contained as of Monday, has consumed 231,000 acres since it erupted last week and became the fifth largest fire in state history. Officials in Santa Barbara County on Monday handed out masks to residents and urged people to stay indoors. Do not come out of your house because you'll be breathing. It's only the fifth. That's what's really crazy because we've been getting the numbers and getting some perspective on this, and it's huge. It's huge. Uh, finally, some, uh, some I think, news America needs to hear. Okay. I think America. Terrible. I think the, the people involved in this story are listening to the, the words of Americans and understanding this is where America wants this to happen. So. Food-related? No. Comcast is dropping out of the running to buy majority of 20th Century Fox. Wow. That is big news. Clearing the path for Disney to complete an acquisition that should it choose to do so, you have... uh, Oh, that would be... It could be... You're you're uniting all these... See... All the X-Men will be under one roof. America wants to see the X-Men fight the Avengers. That's what... They want to see this happen. I'm an American... All and the Marvel characters w- would be under one roof. See, this I is, would prefer for this not to see, happen. This is politics where okay. whenever they talk about America, they're talking about the 40-something percent that voted for them. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes, that's true. They're not talking about the 40-something percent that's against them. And mm-hmm. they go, America wanted this. I'm like, well, half. Yeah. And I think this is even smaller than anyone even knows this is happening. But I'm going to go ahead and tell you America wants the X-Men to fight the Avengers. That's oh, what they God. want. There have been comic books. There are stories I, out there that they could I do. I have the comic book at home. I know. So. so I recently compiled a list of my five favorite Marvel films. Okay. And after I took a look at them on paper, I realized these are films that either it's the first of that character in the sequ- or in yep. the series mm-hmm. or it's a movie that could just exist on its own without any other Avenger that the exception to that was the the first Avengers movie was on my list. Really? But that was back when there were only a handful of them, right? Uh-huh. Now, now there are scores of them. Right. But yeah, Iron Man, the first in that series. Mm-hmm. Uh you've got the first Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. I left that theater thinking I it felt like Star Wars. I was watching Star Somewhat, Wars. Yeah. And it it could have existed on its own. That bug has been flying around this studio this whole morning. Oh, what was the other one? So I said Guardians of the Galaxy. Iron Man. I said Iron Man, The Avengers, Ant-Man is another one oh, yes. that could have just been yes. a standalone film. And then I do I will admit I did enjoy Thor Ragnarok thoroughly. I, have, I think it's the yes. funniest Marvel film. Mm-hmm. But again, even that film is a film 
that pretty much could have just stood, stood on by its itself. Own. Yes. Oh, see, usually the is... best Marvel films are those that can stand by themselves. Yeah. It's just so difficult to de- take the time to develop all these characters and really give them a good, solid story when you mm-hmm. have 50 different characters sharing screen time. Yeah. <sighs> uh, this American does not want to see this happen. I do. Oh, Sean. Sean O'Neill. <sighs> That's because I think. Um, Marvel Studios, which is owned by Disney, and if Disney buys 20th Century Fox and gets all of those, Marvel Studios does a better job of producing the movies than the 20th Century Fox folks. I I I will agree with that. Absolutely. Wow. Um any other Star Wars spoilers that you'd like to share with us? Uh no. Really? I can't do that for another 40 minutes. Okay, I'm going to talk to Spencer and Jerem at BYU Sports Nation, and I'm yeah. going to tell them to lead off their show with you giving a review of Star Wars. They might just do it. Do it. <laughs> you have to talk to their producer, because I'm, I'm sure they've already got the show planned. Yeah. They can push a basketball game. It's fine. They're just going to talk about a basketball just game. Just skip the intro. You know, we don't need to know what's coming up on the show. Okay. Speaking of that, in just a few minutes, we're going to be speaking with our guest, Dr. Paul Jenkins. He's going to talk to us how to deal with holiday stress. Hmm. I know how to deal with that. Some people might use eggnog. All right. Uh, I'm going to use Muddy Buddies. I tend to let my wife take care of most of it, and then I don't have any stress at all. Yeah. It's really tough to remain fit around the holidays. You know I've been doing this this diet bet weight Yeah, you're just, you're just gambling on your diet. Well, mm-hmm. it's really tough because sometimes it's it's difficult because unless both, of, both you and your spouse or your mm. significant other are on board – you're kind of pulling the other one down. Not to say that my wife is pulling me down because I'm making my own choices, but there have been plenty of times when she's been she's tried to be good and I've been the one filling the house with muddy buddies and cookies and all sorts of goodies. <clears throat> Maybe if they weren't called goodies, hmm. I wouldn't feel inclined to try them. Okay, if you're into those, um, <laughs> hot cocoa Oreos. Hot cocoa Oreos? Not the hot cocoa Oreo drink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are hot cocoa Oreos. I've had those. Is that like a spicy cocoa Oreo? No, no, no. Oreo? It's like hot chocolate. No, no, no. Hot chocolate. Oh, okay. So the hot chocolate but flavor, but in an Oreo. And they are amazing. Yeah. Hmm. Got them a couple weeks ago. They're pretty good. Mm. I would try Hard it. to find, but peanut, they are good. Peanut brittle M&Ms. Ooh. Oh. No. Yeah. Where? Why? How have I not I've, heard about this until now? I found them at Target. Now. Oh, I've got what? to try those. Yeah, they're what? good. They, they're called peanut, and then it says burr-ittle. Uh-huh. Oh, burr-ittle, right? Pe- but no, it's, there's no like mint oh, or anything. It's gosh. just peanut. It's like your, your, your normal peanut M&M, except it's peanut brittle in it instead of wow. just a peanut. i got to try that. It's pretty good. Yep. I'm, I'm not going to make it home without a bag of those. <laughs> just swing by a store. Get them. Yeah. Target's on the way home. Hey, go for it. Ooh. Speaking of Christmas. Yes. Santa Claus, Indiana. It's a city. Really? Sure. Yeah. They hmm. get 20,000 letters a year. That oh, my goodness. Me. And they answer all of them. Oh, oh, good yeah. for them. Oh, yeah. They bring in people from the city. They sit down. They go through all the letters. They say they process by a team of 300 elves who write uh, personal replies, pinning up to 2,000 notes a day. 
He said, oh my it's goodness. A, it's an amazing thing to make children happy. Yeah, those says, are notes, not letters. Right. The, the town's chief elf. He's 86 years old. He's in charge oh. of the mammoth effort. Uh, they've been uh, handling Santa's correspondence since uh, she was 11 years old. So this woman's been doing it since she was 11. She's a wow. saint. See, that's something I would gladly volunteer for around the holidays. That'd be so much fun. She goes, they get letters about, you know, people, that, like they st- like little kids say they stop sucking their thumb, and so they're hoping they can get this. And you can tell, <laughs> like, their moms have sat down with them and wrote the letter and talked about what they yeah. wanted. and. And they give you know Santa Claus this thing, or they, uh, I'm living with my grandma, and I want to be with my daddy because you know there's some you know family issues going on, and so there's there's tears, there's laughter, and they have this emotional experience every for the last uh, was like she says she's 86 and she's been doing it since she was 11. That is so cute. And it says they also receive email from older people who are lonely and want a letter from Santa. Sometimes inmates write Santa Claus asking him to send a letter to their children. Post arrives from far away as uh, Japan, China, Malaysia. Each is read. Each is responded to. Oh, and if you get around to it, uh, can you get me out of here? (laughs) Yeah. Get me out of prison. Send me a nail file. I'll get through these bars, right? (laughs) Just some salsa. It'll get me. I can. can... Yeah. It's a Mythbuster thing. That's so great. So the town... Well, of Santa Claus had retained it. If it, it, its original name was Santa Fe, Indiana. Really? In the 1850s, people of the town applied for their own Santa post Fe. office, but they, it was a problem. There was always, already a Santa Fe in Indiana. Oh, please tell me her name is Fay. And the that state, would just be great. No, no, her name was Pat. Oh. Uh, the state wouldn't allow two identically named post offices, so they created a dilemma. They decided uh, that they would change the name to Santa Claus. Instead of Santa Fe, hey. and I don't know. I don't blame them. They said it was Christmas Eve, 1850s, when the townspeople gathered after a Christmas service and said, okay, what's the name going to be? And then someone said Santa Claus, and it stuck. Okay. Uh, I wasn't serious, guys. No, 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 it's really good. Oh, we like that. Okay. Yeah. Copyrighted. So, <laughs> since then. Trademark. They've been answering all these them. letters. Yeah. See, we're going to be talking about how to reduce holiday stress, and just listening to that story just listening to that story it made me feel better, made me feel calmer, more equipped to handle the holidays. And uh, when we return, our guest Paul Jenkins is going to be giving us hopefully a few more tips on how we can be better equipped for the holidays and just enjoy them when we return. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who, as we have speculated, he's got a bit of the man flu this morning. And uh, his loss is my gain because I get to speak with Dr. Paul Jenkins, who uh, received his Ph.D. in clinical psychology from Brigham Young University back in 95. That's right. Uh, He's a member of the American Psychology Association, the American Psychology Law Society, and the Utah Psychological Association. Dr. Paul, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you, Jeff. Glad to be back. I am so happy that you're here because let me give you a little snapshot of what our holidays have looked like okay. around my house. So we it, it it appeared that we had all of our holiday shopping done at Black Friday. We were entering ah. December with our hands just totally washed of all of that, so we thought and now it seems like all the little things that maybe we forgot are starting to pile up. 
all the mm-hmm. gifts that we need to get for our neighbors, our coworkers, you know, things like, oh, we haven't watched all the holiday movies that we watch every year. We've got to cram all of those in. We've got to work. And it can be stressful. Right. So I'm hoping that you can help me and, and help our listeners <laughs> figure out what we can do to be better equipped for the holidays so we can just enjoy them. You know, Jeff, you're honing in on this because sometimes the holidays become, instead of a celebration, it becomes a list of to-dos. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. all of this stuff that we tell ourselves we need to get done. There's the shopping and the decorating and the parties. And, and so it becomes a pressure. Uh, and psychologically, what happens when we set up any kind of pressure, we naturally go into a defensive response. It's called the Mm. fight or flight response. Yeah, yeah. And technically, that's what anxiety is or stress. It's your body trying to respond to a threat. Mm. And the pressure creates a threat. Wow. So that gives us some clues also as to what we can do about it. Yeah. Um, I believe that the holidays are for people and not the other way around. Sure. That people are there to support the holiday. Yeah. Um, what is this all for? And, and, and so I've come up with a little acronym that just kind of helps us to deal with the Perfect. stress of the holidays. It's, you've heard of Christmas bells. Yes. Right? So we'll just <laughs> use the words uh, or the letters in bells. Oh, great. Uh, as a little acronym. And these aren't all of the ideas. These are just a few that might help. Okay. And so that first one, I've got two for B, actually. Belief and breathe. And belief has to do with what is this all about? You yeah. Know? And, and that's why I mentioned that the holidays are for people, mm-hmm. not the other way around. Yeah. So this is a time to rejoice and, and enjoy and connect with people. When we have that belief, instead of a big to-do list— it becomes something that actually creates some relief yeah. for our mind and for our brain. And then I said breathe, too, because just from a physiological perspective, one of the best things you can do to counteract the fight-or-flight response in your own body is to breathe. Just slow it down. <laughs> I recommend in through the nose, hold for a few moments, and then out nice and slow through the mouth. Yeah. Physically. Slow down your breathing. It helps you to counteract that limbic system fight-or-flight response that is so natural when we feel threatened. That's great advice because, yeah, so often we're rushing, we're hurrying to get all these things done. And if you, if you, could, if mm-hmm. you could be a fly on the wall in that room, you could take a look at how ridiculous you're being. Uh, oh, yeah. You know? Perspective wow. is everything. Yeah. And what you believe about what what this experience is creating for you makes all the difference. Yeah. It changes how you experience it. Okay, so that's B, belief and breathe. Belief and breathe. And I've got two for E as well. Okay. Sorry, I couldn't decide which one was the most important. (laughs) For E, I say eat and exercise. Ooh. Now, you guys were chatting a little bit earlier about some of the treats and the goodies that Mm -hmm. come out around the holidays. And this this is actually one of the problems. Yeah. Because those are there Oh, believe to... me, I know. <laughs> right. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And people plan on gaining weight during the holidays. Yeah. You know, because That's crazy. of all of the treats. Why do we do this to ourselves? The studies show that if you don't eat well, your stress increases. Ooh, this is what I need to hear. So we really, and, and I'm not saying you shouldn't enjoy the goodies, 
But can we practice a little moderation perhaps? Right. And keep in mind that our body, including our brain – people ask me all the time, Jeff, is it my, is it my brain or is it my body? That's yeah. Causing, well, your brain is part of your body. <laughs> it's a physiological organ in your head. Yeah. And by the way, your brain – is the biggest energy hog mm-hmm. of any organ in your body. Yeah. It eats up more energy. It requires more fuel. And you think about your car. You know, if you if you go put water in your gas tank, what's going to happen? Yeah, it's not going to function or, properly. <laughs> or thick, sugary syrup. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what kind That's of— a great point. As opposed to premium fuel— that that can help you to operate at a high level of efficiency. Yeah. So people just forget this sometimes at the holidays and they wonder why they're so stressed out. Folks, part of it is physiological. Yeah. And not, running that oh. kind of fuel through your body, including your brain, has an impact on what kind of stress you're experiencing. Now, what do you say to people when, when they say, well, I don't, I don't want to eat all these goodies, but I'm just completely surrounded by them. I've constantly got neighbors knocking on my door, mm-hmm. bringing over treats. I can't just – I don't want to be rude, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and we all experience that. Yeah. In fact, I was talking to Vicki last night about this. Where it started. It has started. Yeah. Here we are, what, is the 12th today? Mm-hmm. And people are already showing up and giving you yep. plates of goodies, right? Is it okay to toss some of those? <sighs> I guess it is. I'm just such a value-minded person, you know, where yeah. like it, I – but I guess if I didn't pay for it, then it doesn't matter. But uh, I guess, yeah, maybe just the sentiment is important to focus on. Well, and we'll come back to that when we get to the L part of this. But um, – can you acknowledge the gift? Can you acknowledge the connection with the person that left it and then make a wise choice about what you're going to put into your body? Yes. But I, then I think, you know, I have these rational, irrational fears like what if they're mm-hmm. over at my house later on and they see their plate of goodies in the trash? Mm-hmm. It's totally irrational. But... I'm sure you can use your creative mind <laughs> yeah. to figure out a way to avoid that particular <laughs> situation. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? But we tell ourselves sometimes, well, if it's there, then I have to eat it. That is not true. And you require good fuel always. Yeah. Not just when the holidays aren't around. So Mm -hmm. just be mindful of that. What am I putting into my body and how is that affecting my stress? Yeah. And then the other part of E is exercise. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. The clinical research shows that when you put antidepressant medication up against exercise, exercise always wins. I believe it, yeah. In the clinical Mm -hmm. research. It's something that helps us to purge our body of toxins. It helps us to increase our energy and our metabolism so that the stuff that you are eating can be metabolized more easily. Yeah, yeah. And yet sometimes during the holidays, we'll take time off from our regular exercise routine. So no wonder we're feeling stressed. Some some of this is just obvious. Yeah, we're not using our brains like you talked about. Or we're we're abusing our brains. I think our brain is going to work for us or against us. Right. And so if we'll take good care of our brain, that includes eating right and getting proper exercise and sleep, taking some time off for for breathing, Mm -hmm. uh, prayer, meditation, those kinds of things. There's a study that came out of Harvard, uh, Dr. Ed Hallowell, called this brain maintenance. 
Oh. And it's just what we're talking about. Yeah. It's exercise and sleep and diet and and taking time for meditation. I'm going to do this. So, I'm going to exercise tonight. And I said it on the radio, so I have to do it now. You are committed. Okay. So that's now what's the first L? Okay. So th- luckily we have two L's in yeah. L's. So <laughs> I didn't have to double them yeah, up both. Yeah. Okay. The first one is to live in the moment. Live to, in the moment. To stay present. Yeah. Think about some of the stress that comes up during the holidays. It's about, oh, my gosh, I need to get this thing done in order to be prepared for that thing to happen. And, and it's this constant building up and anticipation of something that's still in the future. Yeah. When you live in the present moment, you can enjoy what's happening now. Mm-hmm. And this is something that sometimes we call mindfulness or presence. Um, if you're doing the dishes, for example— this is a goofy example, but it works, okay? If you're doing the dishes, enjoy doing the dishes. Wait, enjoy doing the dishes? Be present in that moment. <laughs> Feel that warm water on your hands. Enjoy wow. that for a moment. And that's just an example, but what? how often are we doing whatever we're doing now in order to prepare for something that's coming later and yeah. we miss the now? Right. We miss the now. This is good advice for people that, you know, instead of just enjoying the moment, want to pull out their phone and, oh, it's not fully charged. I got to go charge it or I've got to delete all these other things so I can make room Mm -hmm. for that. Wow. Right. I think one thing I won't do with this one, though, is if my wife is washing the dishes, I don't think I'll walk out of the room and say, hey, honey, enjoy washing the dishes. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not a good idea. Jeff, a good rule of thumb. Psychological principles are for personal use only. Yes. <laughs> as soon as you try to use them on someone, it backfires on yeah. you. Yeah. And okay. that may not increase your joy, I'm just saying. Oh, yeah. So live in the moment. That's live good advice. in the moment. Yeah. And then the second L gets back to our perspective. Love. And this is a big word that means different things to different yeah. people. Why are we having these traditions in the first place? And if it's not to connect with people that we love, then why are we doing it? Yeah. So if we get back to that purpose and we realize, you know what? It's not about having a perfect spread on that table. It's about connecting with people that I love. Yeah, absolutely. Which allows us to live in the present a little more too. Mm-hmm. And having, the, having that purpose, I think, behind our holiday traditions, and think about it, every interaction we have with another person is going to fall on one side or the other. It's either going to be a love choice or a hate choice. Ooh. I know, right? (laughs) I use the word hate because people hate the word hate. Yeah. But what if those are your two options? Yeah. And if I am so consumed with the to-do list that I miss the connection with a person that I love, what does that feel like to them? Does that feel like love or does that feel like hate? Oh, yeah. That feels like hate. Yeah. They don't feel safe either because I'm thinking about my kids and trying to recreate some of these traditions that I grew up with. And, Mm -hmm. yeah, if I'm more focused on these other things, they probably don't feel as safe either. So one of the little mantras that helps me is people before problems Mm. or programs. Yeah. We have a lot of programs. People before programs or problems, values before valuables. Ooh, I like that. Because yeah. we get caught up in the stuff too, right? Yeah. The materialism. 
Mm-hmm. Focus on those values, including love and family and connection yeah. and spirituality. There's a, there's a whole spiritual side to Christmas. Are you Really? <laughs> I think sometimes I people forget about it. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And sometimes we shorten it to be Xmas and we right. take Christ out of Christmas. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's a Christian holiday and no mm-hmm. apologies for that. Merry Christmas and Happy Hanukkah. That is a spiritual. Kwanzaa, yeah. Kwanzaa. Same all. The holidays, holy days. Yeah. There's a spiritual element here. And so if we replace it with materialism, we we lose a big part of the of the yeah. meaning mm. of the season. Okay, so that's the second L. And how about the, the S? Okay, so S stands for serve. Ooh, that's a great one. There was an interesting study that came out about stress levels and the effect of spending money. Okay, And it was so interesting when they just gave people money to spend. They mm-hmm. were thinking, well, if they have some money, because a lot of people are like, well, if I had more money, I wouldn't be so stressed out, right? Sure. They, they gave people money, and the ones who I, – I think they divided into two groups. I can't remember the exact uh, research design for this study. But one of the groups went out and spent it on themselves. Oh, really? It did not improve their stress. Wow. Another group went out and spent it intentionally on someone else, mm-hmm. and it lowered their stress. Oh, which That's is huge. interesting. You've yeah. heard that it's better to give than to receive. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of psychological reasons why that's true. Most anxiety, including stress, is self-focused. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you think about where's my mind if I'm feeling stressed? You know, it's like, am I ready? Yeah. Am I good enough? Are people going to approve of me? It's all about me. Yeah. Yeah. Service is not about you. Mm-hmm. It's about what you can do to lift and elevate someone else's experience or life. Yeah. And when we serve, we feel less stress. Yeah. There's an escape to it as well. I mean, you don't, when you're focusing on other people, you don't have to, like you said, feel that stress. We don't have right. to worry about the to-do list. We can just, we can put our problems elsewhere and focus on others. That's great. It's not about me. Yeah. Right. I don't know if you heard the story that Terry just shared about the uh, the 86-year-old woman in the town of Santa Claus. Do you remember what state that was, Sean? Indiana. Indiana, Indiana. yeah. Right. Since she was 11 years old, she's been answering these letters from kids on behalf of Santa Claus. I can't ima- – I, I, I can only imagine just a, a portion of the happiness and joy that she feels performing that right. service. That's incredible. And for all of you listeners, if you'll check into your own experience and notice – that when you are serving others, you feel different. Oh, yeah. It, it puts you in a whole different mindset. It's a different context. It gives you a sense of purpose. And it is one of the best stress reducers that we could ever practice. And the holidays are a perfect time to serve some people. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people in need. Go find a way to serve them. It's yeah. going to bring down your stress. Yeah. This is such good advice, Dr. Paul. Uh, We really appreciate you here on the show. And very timely, too, because it's not too late. It's not too late if you're focused on yourself. Check your pulse. Yeah, get out there and serve other people. Make sure to breathe and eat healthy and exercise. And these things can help you reduce your stress through the holidays. 
Again, right. it's bells, and uh, you're not going to want to miss an opportunity to improve your Christmas this year uh, by making it better for others. Right. So, Dr. Paul, thank you so much. And uh, we're going to have to have you back. Oh, we love pleasure. having you on the I show. I always love being here. And uh, hopefully Dr. Matt will be back with you next time, and I'm, I'm sure he's going to be bummed that he missed out on this opportunity, but he can listen back and, and practice the Bell's Principle for himself. When we return, we're going to be speaking with, uh, I assume it'll be Spencer and Jerem, but we'll at least be speaking to our good friends at BYU Sports Nation. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to, uh, I almost said BYU Sports Nation. Then I thought, what else the name of the show could be? And then I thought, screen cleaning. It's not that either. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. I was just thrown off by this wonderful, wonderful music. If you haven't guessed already, there's a new film that's coming out. And I know Spencer and Jerem are excited to see Star Trek The Last Frontier this Friday when it comes out in theaters. Spencer and Jerem, is that true? Something like that, yep. <laughs> I just wanted to check to make sure you were actually listening. Star Trek The Last Frontier. <laughs> hey, I'm so excited I get to go see this film with you guys. You you know, you're uh, we're going to go to the employee party on Friday, and we're all going to storm the theater like a bunch of storm... Uh, Troopers. Okay. I got that I thought, right. I know I, I did. I you were going to say storm cadets or something. No. <laughs> like a bunch of yeah, storm warriors. Storm watchers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I want you to know that there's somebody standing right across from me who has actually seen this film and he is just itching, itching to get Sean his O'Neill? review out. Yes. In 10 minutes and 49 seconds. Or I can't do my math, but really soon. And so we were thinking that we could start your show with Sean O'Neill's review for Star Wars. What do you think? No. no oh, violation. come on. Foul. Wow. Target, targeting. After all, all the, the nice things that we do for you, it's Christmas. Come on. You can't just pull the It's Christmas card, Jeffrey. Uh, that's the only card I can pull these this is days. This spoiler-free environment. Wow. We're going Thursday night, and then <gasps> we're going to go yep. Friday afternoon again with... Mm-hmm. Oh, you devils. Why? Why? Why not? Don't bring him into this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'm yeah, going... we're going to go. We're going to be so tired Friday, but we're going to be, uh, you know, all Star wow. Wars. Uh, Friday's going to be an epic show because we will have seen Star Wars... And BYU plays Utah in basketball Saturday. It's going to be a great That show. is epic. Wow. See, now I'm, I feel like I'm going to be way out of the conversation by the time Friday rolls around. Mm, not really. Not really? Right. I guess. I guess it could be. be. Right. Wow. Don't fret. So we've got some other uh, interesting sports things happening. You know, there are some lawsuits, pending lawsuits on the Exciting. NFL network. Okay. Um, yeah. Terry, he mentioned a story about how they're changing some rules in golf where viewers can't call up anymore and uh, and say, oh, uh, he, he didn't put this that ball great, back right? in the same spot where it was before. Like, I, can't get believe, off my lawn. I can't believe they're taking those calls seriously and that it was I, affecting the game. How is that possible? I know. One of my favorite things is to realize how foolish something was from the past. <laughs> yeah. Like, like 
Lavelle Edwards would take phone calls in the post game show on the radio from fans. They yeah. would just have carte blanche and be like, "Why'd you go for it on fourth and seven in the third quarter at the forty six? Like, how exactly. stupid is that? Yeah. Like, I know at the time it was cool. Like, the access was cool, but he shouldn't be thrown to the wolves like that. What? Yeah, man. What? So, so yeah. Now you you know you bring that up and it's like, yeah. What? Why did why did we do that again? Yeah. So it was interesting when I started hearing about some of these pending lawsuits uh, on the NFL Network because we've seen it in other industries. So we've seen it in the political world, obviously. We've seen it mainly in Hollywood. But now yeah. we're starting to get a little more focus, a little more of a spotlight on the athletes and the, the people that work for the NFL Network. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting time, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Is Spencer still there? I'm Is here. He doing his I'm, makeup. <laughs> I'm I'm here, Jeff. Um, I'm just a, I'm just avoiding anything and everything related to the NFL Network right now. <laughs> yes. All right. We can talk about something else. We we can talk about what's coming up on your show here in just a few minutes. Oh, if that yeah, makes you feel no, better. To put a bow on all of this, <laughs> it's it's time for change, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's time for change. Absolutely. Anyway. <laughs> you you just put you just slapped your it's Christmas card on top of that conversation. Yes. Very yes. good. Okay, so what's coming up on your show here in about seven minutes? Um an interesting dynamic that we have discovered with some stats fun. Because there is this perception that BYU basketball is way better defensively. They're winning more games. They've won five in a row for the first time in a couple of years. They're eight and two for the first time in six years. Everyone's pointing to the better defense. Hmm. But statistics would show otherwise. So what in the world is happening? What, what is making the difference for BYU basketball? If it isn't Wheaties. clearly They're eating their Wheaties. better defense. Hmm. In the 90s, people don't eat Wheaties. They don't, but don't. Isn't that still the coveted spot to be on that Wheaties box? Do you remember Frosted yeah. Wheaties when Ken Griffey Jr. was on the box? Ooh, awesome! Yeah, Wheaties don't actually taste good, but they <laughs> fooled us because they had good marketing. I hope Don O'Neill's not listening because that's uh, we can't disparage. They're not a sponsor, so we're okay. fine. Okay, all right, good, good. Okay, so BYU basketball defense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's coming up on we're, the show. We're going to give you some. Are they actually better? Hmm. The answer may surprise you. Plus, we'll talk to Ken Pomeroy. Thank who, you, uh, Professor a, Frank from The yes, Simpsons. College basketball statistician. He's going to discuss and uh, help us evaluate, is BYU actually better on defense? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Also, we have a Major League Baseball all-star on the program. <gasps> His name is Wally Joyner. <gasps> no. He was the man at BYU. You've got Wally Joyner? Absolutely Wally! we do. You're a baseball guy. You can appreciate that. <laughs> we have a yes. lot to discuss with them, too. Jack Morris, first BYU alum in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, what does it mean to, for BYU to have a guy in the Hall of Fame? Wow. BYU's a new turf field. BYU debuted three major leaguers last year. BYU used to have a bunch of major leaguers. Uh, not, they debuted three finally. Uh, what, what, what does it take to uh, sustain some uh, guys at the next level? We'll talk to them. Plus, between the lines, Lauren McLean. There's some big game coming up on Saturday. I the don't Brigham's know. and oh. the Utes. Oh yeah, coming up. that game. <laughs> hey, and thank you for uh, throwing in that Pixar reference, Jerem. I appreciated that. You're welcome. I don't think enough people talk about the film Wally like they should. Eva! Wally, <laughs> I love that movie. 
It's one of the best romantic comedies of this age. I thought it was very sweet. Yes. Well, anyway, I hope that uh, the two of you have a very sweet show and enjoy your time with Wally Joyner and enjoy seeing uh, Star Wars before and without me. Um, oh, oh, we will. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We'll be ready on Friday to spoil the whole thing for you. Oh, don't sit anywhere near me, please. <laughs> All right. Have a good show, you guys. We'll talk Thanks, to Jeff. you later. Man, everybody's seeing Star Wars before me. It's not fair. Sorry. You know what I, I do? I I go into a mode of I just don't think about it, mm-hmm. and I don't stress over it. I don't watch the trailers, and if I go in if I go in with an attitude of of uh, apathy, then I'm sure to come out blown away. Right? Hmm. Good question. That you I've can gone, answer in I've four gone, minutes. Well, yeah. Well, not not about any movie because I go see you know, as I do movie reviews here on the yeah. station, and I go see movies all the time. And I have I've had apathy towards a film before and come out not feeling that same way about a movie. Yeah, I've had that happen, and it's it's a unique experience. I love going in blind. Some of oh, my yes. best experiences at the theater have come from uh, going in blind, not knowing anything about the movie. Well, a lot of times there are reviews out from national critics. Yeah, you know. so you start to develop a... I, yeah. try, I try to avoid those yeah. before I go see a movie. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, that's just the way I do it because I don't want to see somebody else's opinion before I make my own opinion about the film. And yet sometimes you wish you would have taken a look at the reviews. <laughs> Depending there on the are movie. times like that. As you know, we like to end each show with our hero story of the day. Every year, the pile of toys Nolan Adams brings to Sanford Children's Hospital in South Dakota grows. While driving with his family to visit his grandmother four years ago, Adams heard a radio ad for the hospital. He asked his parents, Trisha and Jason, how many toys the kids there received during the holidays. And when they told him, not really as much as you, he got an idea. The family stopped and bought two presents, a toy truck and a stuffed animal, and dropped them off at the hospital. The beginning that it began a new family tradition. Through Nolan's project, Adams raises money to buy gifts for the patients, delivering them in December. After his first small donation, Adams came back with 50 gifts, 50 gifts the next year, 75 gift, uh, gifts after that. This year, he made his biggest donation yet for 176 kids. That is just huge. And uh, Nolan Adams, you're our hero of the day. Go out there, folks. Try to find a way to make a difference for people this holiday season. BYU Sports Nation is up next. We'll talk again tomorrow.